Welcome, caller. You're on the line with the calls are coming from inside the podcast, an exploration of the human side of horror. Each week, we call a unique guest and ask them about one horror movie that left its mark on them. Together, we do a deep dive into our guest's personal connection to find out what horror feels like. I'm Kevin Sparrow, and this week, we're wrapping up our Horror Comedy Month with an intriguing intertwining of themes. Join us around the campfire and down by the lakeside as we make our retreat to the deep woods for two wood-paneled tales of terror. First, we are joined by horror writer and podcaster Sheree Bohannon to sing the praises of Josh Rubin's indie hit, Scare Me. And then we close out with the signature meta-horror comedy of the last decade, 2012's The Cabin in the Woods, joined by playwright Jan Rosenberg. Yeah, like that's kind of it in the horror world. Um, I have my first like production as a playwright, but a lot of people are like, what does that mean? Um, <laughs> but that's like next season. So I'll, I'll live and figure out how to talk about it because it's weird. Like we're both coming from theater backgrounds. And so it's always weird when it's like yeah. your first professional production, like the people who've been like <laughs> sweating and crying over my work has not been professional. <laughs> so, oh. um, so yeah, it's weird. Well, we might, we might get into it. Um, just, yeah. I'll do an intro <laughs> and then we'll talk through it. Awesome. We'll see where we go because yes, definitely theater. Theater is right up there with horror in terms of loves. In terms of problems, in terms of uh, everything, Listen, um, it's everything like, that's I giving me heartburn, <laughs> anxiety, body. the three AMs, <laughs> it's all there. Yeah. So. Welcome to the calls are coming from inside the podcast. I am here today with a very special guest. Maybe you know her as the podcast host for A Nightmare on Fear Street, Flirty Massacre, or The Altar Tapes. Maybe you know her from her bylines at Dread Central, serving up a wealth of great horror recommendations, or maybe you even know her as a playwright. But however you know her, you have to know. Sheree Bohannon, welcome. Thank you. It's so awesome to be here. I love seeing people in theater and horror because that's how my brain works. And so I was like, yay, new friend. Yes. <laughs> horror, theater, doors. They're all open. And this was not even really planned, but we've got so many sub themes going on today. Uh, In this episode, we got horror comedy, right, as a starting point. Mm -hmm. And we also have cabin movies. So we're looking at this kind of in comparison, not comparison, but my double feature recommendation, along with this is The Cabin in the Woods. Oh, God, yes. Which we'll get into in the second half. And then also... Uh, Jan Rosenberg, who I'll be talking with for that one, is also a playwright. So we've got three playwrights talking about two cabin horror comedy-based movies. It's everything. This was perfect, and I didn't even really plan it that way. I love this, because The Cabin in the Woods is a movie I have a history with, because, again, I I was in the Buffy generation. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so I've seen that movie. The Buffy generation. Right? Yes, yes. Like, we're all from there. Um, and we got feels. But, like, I, I loved that movie. I thought it was very smart and very funny. And it, mm-hmm. it, I think it was the first time I was like, horror comedies aren't always just sort of, like, attacking me. <laughs> mm. And then I forgot about it because, like, you have to sort of distance yourself from Whedon 
Um, <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah, it creates a lot of distancing, a lot of dissonance, uh, thinking about it. So trying to separate that movie off on its own is a challenge. Does it need to be separated? Maybe not. Maybe there's still problems to be unpacked. We'll find out <laughs> in hour two. <laughs> My brain has definitely started doing that on its own. Like there, I somehow, because again, like these are not things that I'm not familiar with. <laughs> these are all things mm-hmm. I've watched repeatedly. But like when we covered the first stream on our show, it was the first time I'd gone back to it in years. And like mm. seeing those names run across the screen, I was like, oh no, that's why <laughs> I've not been here for a minute. Oh God. Um, but our brains are just like, you don't want to think about that. You want this comfort food. I'm like, I do. And then she's like, that's your artery. I'm like, no. <laughs> right. Of, of who, yeah. How do you, how can you trust a movie ever again? Maybe you go, go indie, which we're going to do today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so indie. So indie. I, I love it. But coming from that, I guess, standpoint. So it was interesting to use a phrase like a, a horror comedy that's not attacking me, which is a good starting point for our question, because this month we're trying to answer the question of what makes a horror comedy effective? I wouldn't necessarily like, what's a good horror comedy? What makes a bad horror comedy? Just what makes a horror comedy work for you? Awesome. Um, I think, because again, I, I did not know I liked horror comedies until recently. I mean, like we had The Cabin in the Woods and I grew up on Ghostbusters and all the Ghostbusters, but like, it's just mm. sort of like water or breathing, you know, you don't really go, oh, I love this because you're like, this is right. my childhood. This is what I, <laughs> this is what I do. <laughs> if Ghostbusters are there, I'll be there. But I didn't know I could actually like laugh and enjoy and not be like, oh no, that was a fat joke for no reason. Or, oh, we did that with the black character. Or where's, where's, mm. where are the women? Um, like, I remember as a kid, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, um, April was always sort of like away or being kidnapped. She was never in the frame. And I was like, why? Yeah. And so I think what I am learning to love about these new horror comedies, specifically indie horror comedies, I think that's where it's really at. Mm. Because like the indie mm-hmm. creators aren't like dealing with like the producers and the big budgets. And the, we're speaking to like this section of America that doesn't want to like have these conversations. It's usually the outcasts and the theater kids who are like, you know what? Right. I want me and my friends to be in this world. And we want to tell our jokes. And we're used to being... We're used to being smarter with our humor because we're so left out a lot of the time, I feel. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it's very rarely, and I mean, there are always problematic people everywhere, so I don't want to be like, we never ruin it. Because um, I can think of, like, a bunch of, like, Black comedians I grew up with, and I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> um, but I think that, for the most part, we understand how to be funny and use humor to deflect as opposed to attack. Mm-hmm. And so where people can get behind it and feel included and actually enjoy themselves. I remember the first time I saw the movie we're talking about today, Scare Me, I went into it like braced because I was like, oh no, it's a horror comedy. It's going to come. When's it coming? And then I saw Aya Cash, mm-hmm. like, oh no, she's in danger. <laughs> and I saw Chris Ray, like, oh no, both are in danger. <laughs> we're all in danger here. <laughs> we're all in danger. And so I was just like braced waiting for like Josh Rupin to hit me and hurt me. <laughs> and then the credits rolled and I was like, wait, I... What? I can have fun? I, hmm. And so I, that, that's why I keep going back to it. And it's why it's in like my mm-hmm. top five or six horror comedies of the last couple of years. Yeah. I know that you watched the movie again today. So that's, yeah. you know, it's fresh. No, I've seen this movie at least 25-ish times over mm. the pandemic. Oh, wow. Maybe more. And I just, because it's my comfort movie and we're in a pandemic. Mm. So if you can find comfort, take it. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh, this is so perfect. Yes, perfectly comfort movie. Yeah. I found it on an accident because of Twitter. Um, Twitter's awesome that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes, I should yeah. say sometimes, Twitter's awesome. <laughs> that thing about Twitter is awesome. Yes, that one day. Specifically, <laughs> <laughs> recommendations on Twitter, awesome. Awesome. Other stuff, Lee. <laughs> yeah. But it was like our first season with Fear Street and a friend was like, have you mm-hmm. seen Scare Me? And I was like, I've heard of it because Aya Cash is a goddess and I'll go wherever she goes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we were talking about it and other people were like, you should watch Scare Me. Why haven't you seen Scare Me? You need to see Scare Me. And I was like, okay, I get it. And then Josh Rubin was like, I see my thing being tagged a lot. I'm going to see what's going on. If you do something with it, I might step in and say hi on your show if that's okay. And I was like, you mean you'll do an interview? And because he started, he was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Um, and so yeah. I was like, okay, I'll watch it because I don't want to separate an interview for something that's like not great. Right. And I ended up loving it. So again, Twitter won that day. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter won once in... A millennium? A generation? Right. I don't know. I don't know how often Twitter wins. <laughs> About once a Slayer. <laughs> every once every Slayer. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty, yeah, pretty generous. <laughs> we'll get into that in the second half of this episode. So that's, that's great. I think Scare Me does such a great job uh, of balancing these things and not doing an expected trope. Really, there's nothing, I don't know, I don't find very much of it objectionable right humor wise there's not anything where i feel like you said attacked right there's not a focus on on making you feel uh invalidated for not having a hegemonic identity right Right? like it's not written for the echo chamber it's it's written for everybody who just wants to have a good time um yeah if you like pizza and beer specifically it's a brilliant time (laughs) if you're giving up one it's still fine Given that we have so many themes, I mean, I think part of it to know, right, for the movie is that it takes place in a cabin because Fred, Josh Rubin's character, is going on a writer's retreat and he meets Fanny, Aya Cash's character, who is also kind of retreated to the woods for her her writing experience. And so as writers, would you ever take up this offer would you look forward to going to a cabin in the woods or have you seen too many horror movies to prevent <laughs> this from happening? I've seen way too many horror movies and I'm also not an outdoor girl. So my, by the time mm. we're done, I'm glamping in a hotel anyways. So I would yeah. be like, can I stay to bed and breakfast? Can I do a cute little in something with Wi-Fi and food I already made because I can't cook. I don't have survival skills. And so like when the electric goes out, that's when I would be doomed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I don't need that. Right. How am I going to get, I need trustworthy internet. I need trustworthy, a lot of things. I have a lot of research to do as a right. writer. <laughs> right. How's this cabin going to help me? Listen, like, what do I do if a bear shows up? I just fall out and die. I don't, I'm a city girl. And so like, that is not my lane. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no bears. No, thanks. No. Um, I mean, from a distance, as an idea of a friend, great. Bears right? are great. Winnie the Pooh is gorgeous. He's adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. He is. But basically, as we said, we kind of looked at this. We talked a little bit about your history, right? It came up on Twitter and you got the push eventually to see it. But seeing it multiple times, I guess what 
for you makes it feel like such a pandemic comfort film? Like what, did it come out at the right moment in time? Do you feel like you might've attached to it regardless? I guess I'm curious about the, the history of the, the connection. 100%. Um, when I discovered this movie, we had just started our podcast and I was like, mm-hmm. no horror comedies. But I was also living in Bloomington, Indiana because I'd taken a job in a theater department and it was a mistake. And we were mm. also like in the pandemic and there was no vaccine yet. So we couldn't even pretend we were going to go outside. So I was just isolated and like making my weird little art and like making my weird little podcast and working this job that was like sucking my soul. <laughs> and so I, there's something about that cabin fever and seeing that these two people who are alone together because they're out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> they have a cell phone, they can get pizza, but like clearly not going to drive in the storm. Um, mm-hmm. and, it's just, and keeping yourself entertained um, because it's so hard. Like, I live on TV, but, like, watching it for, like, three years straight has definitely changed me. Even mm-hmm. I will go outside, I think, soon. Um, so I I definitely related to that. And I also attached to Fanny because I was mm-hmm. beginning to understand that I, I am good at some things, even though, like, I've been told I'm not. And I've been made to feel like I can't say I'm good at things. Because that's just how we treat young girls. Like, how dare you have self-esteem? Stop that. Right. And so I, I latched onto her in a way that I don't think a lot of people do. Because a lot of people, there's a lot of fanny hate on the timeline um, and in other people's podcasts. I can understand that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen a ton of that, fortunately. I, I don't go looking <laughs> too deeply into, like, the random assortment. It just depends. But I definitely get why that might happen i don't i don't agree i think she's great but <laughs> i think she's great i think she's confident i think she's smart and talented and driven and she's just kind of over everybody else's bs um because again yeah. like fred is definitely <laughs> not the only person who said all of the things he said to her and gotten jealous of her in her career and yeah. like you, mm, this is like a monday it's like monday microaggressions and so like she's just over it and she's tired and she's trying to relax I uh, mm-hmm. I even like, and I don't want to skip too far ahead, but like, there's this moment when he finds out what she's been writing about him, and he's upset with her for writing it. But I'm like, but it's true. If you don't want it to be true, then you should change the way you're doing things and moving and talking to people, <laughs> and, and not double down on it. Listen. But yes, we'll get that. That's kind of the crux turning point of the movie. I, I mean, I guess is it really a turning point? That was also one thing I saw in some random reviews where people were like, oh, it, this is a spoiler because you're talking about like this thing or talking about toxic masculinity or some of the movie's themes. I'm like, well, that's, that's just what the movie is. That's there through the whole movie. (laughs) It's not, it's not a a twist. (laughs) I think it's very telling how a lot of the critics, because critics are just inherently usually older white men. It's just what it is. Mm. (laughs) Um, I wish it was different. I wish a lot of things were different. I wish I was taller, but like, I, I think that a lot of them don't understand the power dynamics and the privilege in these spaces and how we have to like sort of interact with it because we're only given so many options. Mm -hmm. And so like, they're just like, friends just having fun. But like, friends actually like trying to like dig at her the whole movie, but she's just like bobbing and weaving and coming back harder. (laughs) And you you sort of watch it build much like him falling all the time. You watch those build and escalate and it, both of them end up biting him later in the movie. Um, yeah. But it's hard to be aware of a problem when you don't want to be self-aware, I guess. Yeah, which I think is actually a credit to the movie. Um, so this is 
written, directed, starring Josh Rubin. And I think that self-awareness comes through by casting himself, which generally as a, as a thing, I'm not always a fan of. I think it can be uh, challenging to wear all those hats and yes. make it work. And there's definitely, I think even in this movie, probably some indulgences just for a particular like performance moments or beats that I'm like, mm, having another person on hand might might be helpful to tweak some of this. But overall, I think it's the right choice because it does show a self-awareness and not assuming that I get to be the hero of this story that I made myself. 100% agree with that. I brought that up um, when I interviewed him. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I was like, usually when we have like, a white man in a cab and he's the hero he's the star and like fred is not we don't understand fred's not likable i think a lot of people are like that's josh rubin he makes me laugh he has nine thousand batman impersonations but like josh rubin and right. fred are not the same person and so <laughs> we need to separate that church and that state real quick because like again yeah. <laughs> um we very quickly fred becomes a problem and you're just like feeding needs to leave um, I'm annoyed for her. I'm laughing, and this is a cute story. But I would be like, I'd rather go spend time alone in my cabin because <laughs> you're being extra. Yeah, she goes above and beyond to be, even to the point of like instruction, being an instructive writer who's like, yeah, I don't need to explain all my credentials. I, I mean, she's even humble about it at different times. Just like, yeah. You don't really need to be unless, you know, the audience watching this turns against you because you're not a woman who's staying in her place, quote unquote. <laughs> it's a lot. As much as I'm like, yeah, this is a pretty easy watch. There is that undercurrent of like, I think if you've ever been, I mean, particularly for women or anyone with a marginalized gender identity, it, it is that feeling of I have to always rationalize myself and explain like, Actually, my point of view is valid and my credentials do matter. Yes. So I, I don't, I shouldn't have to explain that when you wouldn't put the same scrutiny on cis white man of the day. Right? No. Sometimes I look at all the receipts I keep um, when people <laughs> are being rude to me <laughs> just because like I'm a black one on the internet. So therefore mm-hmm. my days are wild. Um, and I think for all the receipts I have to keep just in case somebody ever questions why it is something. And I'm like, that's not the way it should be. Like, it's here in black and white. Why are we pretending I should care about this man's feeding who just pissed all over me because I said a thing and he disagrees with my thing because he believes that somebody else should make this movie because somebody else needs to be another chance. It's like, I'm I'm good. This is why it may not be giving chances. Let her direct this. Mm-hmm. Let, <laughs> let this new director direct this. Who's going to, like, ask black people <gasps> concept. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so... It, Out it, of it, all the things, yeah. Right? In 2022, I can't imagine. Listen, listen, it's too woke if there's too many black people. And by too many, it's two. Um, so. Oh my gosh, I'm going to fall apart <laughs> from I, uh, the word woke being used so inappropriately all, just, all the time. All the time, all the time. It's the new battle cry for the chads. Like, it's just mm. like, it's woke. And then they all swarm. And it's like, there was two black people in the movie and they had small roles. You're both going to live, Chad. And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm attacked. I could, I can see that as a criticism, not a valid one, uh, I will say, but definitely that if you have that mentality, you probably would see this movie in that way because it is very critical of that mindset uh, of white male privilege and what should be handed to you just by 
honor of being that identity category. Yes. Maybe we can walk into some of the beats that make up this movie. I don't usually do like a plot by plot summary. Sometimes I I kind of do, but I'm totally open to hopping around because there's just a lot of different little things to get into. And I would say it's a hard movie to structure that way because it is so primarily about storytelling. I love it. Maybe this is why as a theater artist, like it's so theatrical. It's so dependent on watching the performance unfold in real time and not expecting too much visual. Oftentimes there are these empty open frames on screen um, and just using sound and dialogue and somewhat the movement uh, or gesture of performance, right? It is very theatrical in a lot of ways. And I love that. I describe it to my friends who I haven't made watch it yet before we watch it as sort of a, a weird feminist love letter to theater kids. That's what it feels like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that's why I love it because whatever my relationship is to theater, I still have it and I'm still rooting mm-hmm. for it in my deepest, darkest corners of my soul. And so I'm just like, this is fun. I want this. We can all have this. Right. And then we get mammoth instead. But that's. Oh my gosh. I'm going to throw up. <laughs> um, does it need to happen? No. No. It just is worse and worse. It's compounded. I don't know how. It... This is, again, a tangent, but just in the that way of, I think it's perfectly illustrative and hopefully people take that lesson to heart, but you can look at a movie like this, which is playing on that idea of here is the harm of having this mentality that things are owed to you just for being a man and apply that to David Mamet, who is like, things are owed to me for being this well-known playwright theatrical figure which is like yeah it was definitely influential but it was all bolstered by all these other men in the industry who wanted to see this thing that wasn't most of what we in an audience wanted and especially not people i would say around my age and younger right us millennials and gen z kids that this is not the theater we want so how does it keep coming up i don't know I keep hoping that like the era of him and Neil LaBute specifically um, is behind us. <laughs> like this era of we're woman hating, but it's fine because it's art. I, I don't understand. I don't understand how so many tickets were sold and so many people have been bamboozled. I, I just don't. <laughs> and, right. Of the let's do misogyny to show something about misogyny. I'm like, well, right? no, just showing it isn't enough. You can go the extra layer and actually... Be very critical in the text itself. It's like like stealing someone's car to open up a conversation about theft. That's what it's like. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) My God, that's such a good apt comparison. It only works if you're gay. Uh, Be gay, do crimes. Yes. Then it's it's totally fair. It's stylish. Because then it's illustrative. Yes. (laughs) But going into the movie a little bit more, this opening scene is very interesting to me. We have a very small cast. So I feel like outside of Josh Rubin and Aya Cash, everyone else is a, a bit more of cameo. But we have this scene where Fred is getting driven to the cabin by Bettina, who is kind of a chauffeur for, I guess I would say probably for this whole campground experience. But she is also a, a writer, uh, a prospective writer as well. And she's so funny. I don't know what it is about 
this performance, but I think Rebecca Drysdale has that right, innocent, naive, I don't know, non-urban person, <laughs> country person. I don't know what the right thing, what the right word for that type of person is. It's just like, it's Midwestern, but they're not in the Midwest. So I'm like, I don't know what to call this. It's that small town. <laughs> I'm, I'm being... I'm being so friendly that it's annoying. Um, I also mm-hmm. have only a vague idea of what's going on. And it's just, it's charming because she plays it so honestly. She's not making fun of this person. This person might be her no, sister no. or her cousin. And she's just like, this is an impersonation. <laughs> it feels so honest and so true. I know this person with the Liza Vanelli and the James Cameron. Um, and, James Cameron. Right? Like, I, she kills me every time. She kills me every time. And that car ride is probably one of my favorite openings. Oh, in mm-hmm. a minute, yeah. It's great, uh, and Fred is just kind of annoyed in the backseat, annoyed that someone has to talk to him. Just like, yeah, sure, we've all been there. No one wants to talk in an Uber, but sometimes it's okay. It's okay to open up. It is. Or at least be like, you can talk. I'll just be here and listen. That's fine. <laughs> and the sad part is, this is probably the only time Fred will ever be made to feel like a star. And he's just like, it's mm. not what I want. <laughs> right. It's a very strange little introduction to him. And I also like that we start getting just e- even into like the history of storytelling here as Bettina talks about her idea of a script for the story of Cora from the Bible. And so we get that kind of thread throughout of like, okay, this is going to be a very storytelling going all the way back to biblical history, right? It's not quite that, <laughs> that dense throughout the movie, fortunately, but it is one of those things where I didn't even really bother to look it up. I'm like, I, I you know, I did enough so, Bible time in my we <laughs> all childhood. Did. I was homeschooled. <laughs> That's enough for most of my friends. We're good. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also love that he's so dismissive of Patina because, like, he asks, like, mm. Fanny needs to listen to him and Fanny should be in awe of him. And Patina's like, I have a story. And he's like, oh, I'm so out. I can't. And it's just like, good sir, you you work for your survival gig and you talk about writing. Um, <laughs> what is what is a five-minute car ride? Right. And a story that she's able to, like, pace out and talk, like, plot by plot, right? She's farther along than he is in a lot of ways where he can't get past <laughs> an opening image or a thought, right? <laughs> Very interesting. We kind of allied over it. And I think that's an important choice there that we kind of jump over some of the stories because we are, give, it's only a selective attention, right? The movie's giving selective attention in the same way Fred is. And it's right? a really interesting thing. I love that literally Patina and Carlo are able to plot a story or a couple of stories in our, their small times that we see them. And Fred, yeah. like the whole time, needs like Fanny to be like, but then what? No, that's not. Mm. <laughs> and I'm just like, you, you want to be a writer, but I don't think you've been doing the work if these other people are showing you up. Um, <laughs> like, that's, where's your story, Fred? Yeah. Just like, you're just not doing the work. And so he gets to the cabin and we get. One of my favorite elements of this movie starts up right away, which is sound design. We have to talk. I can't talk about this movie without the the wonderful sound design. But he's kind of starting to research, look up things, and think through his his werewolf story. Uh, Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. That'll come into play later in Josh Rubin's career. (laughs) 
it's very funny. Uh, I don't know if that was a nod or not. I guess they were shot close enough together that probably he's hinting at werewolves within. Maybe like he was talking about some of his other scripts that he wrote, and Wars Within came like I think he might have gotten the offer like towards the end of this or like in the middle of it. Mm. But like I I love the werewolves, love the werewolves <laughs> um, because I definitely like screen recorded it and sent it to my friend who I was making watch it with me one night because I watched it multiple times, and I was like, I'm gonna tell your kids mm. this is Wars Within, and it's just like Joshua been <laughs> growling with <laughs> a flashlight. Um, I just I love how they like play together like this is a very good double feature yes they they work really well and and are very different takes on horror comedy we kind of get that sound design element coming in as he's listening to this door he's making sounds of like the wind or the door creaking but then there's also another track under that of kind of pounding at the door and that kind of comes in and out throughout the film and throughout the different stories they're telling I don't know what about it is so good, so effective. I think the theater could use more of this technique. Even though I feel like it's very theatrical, there's a lot of things that I'm like, huh, maybe some more theater staged productions should take a cue from this movie. Like you can incorporate sound, you can incorporate different things, maybe. Right? Smidge. (laughs) I know so many sound designers that could give us so much and we just never turn them loose because I think that... Unfortunately, a lot of the people who get to like hold those purse strings and make those decisions want to keep doing things the way we've always done them, which is why mm-hmm. a lot of us are just like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> Please get me out of my degree. <laughs> Please get me out of my career field. I'm going to take these giant breaks before we can come back yeah. to it. Yeah. Right. Because it's, it's hard to do. Yeah. To think of the equity of the work as you're trying to make it. And that shouldn't be on you as, as the playwright to <laughs> figure out the equity of your <laughs> Uh, your whole uh industry uh, same with <laughs> same with the film industry same with everything <laughs> so i i think that's that's also what's nice about this movie is that it really isn't that invested in industry it's invested in the actual process the art making process which is really an interesting one to see even if you're not a writer i think it's easy to understand maybe some of the like personal connection you would make to it is a little less if you don't work in a creative medium like that but i think most people can can understand where these uh characters are coming from why did i forget the word characters who knows you know what (laughs) (laughs) it's 2022 and we are both awake and functioning that's all people can ask (laughs) yeah can drop a word or two right lose lose half of my vocabulary that's okay i didn't need it anyways (laughs) (laughs) never but we get a little bit more just of his first night there, and then we kind of jump right over to the next morning and right into his introduction to Fanny, Fanny Addy, the horror writer, as she introduces herself pretty quickly. And I think she is a bit standoffish at first, right? He just says, I'm Fred, and she says, I didn't ask you your name, but I she didn't. It's true. It's accurate. Exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I... I understand where she's coming from because like I <laughs> sometimes I'm out in the world minding my business and then all of a sudden there is a man taking up my space and energy <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm just like I'm good I'm trying to like go to the grocery store and like not today so whether she was like is he heen on me or is this about to be like a lifetime movie situation I don't know I just don't want it I'm just trying to get the job and he's like I'm going friendly <laughs> yeah yeah. Like, or is he trying to explain the knee injury I have to me that I just 
had on my own. I'm like, you don't need, <laughs> I don't need you to explain my own body to me. Uh, I, I think that it's definitely something that it's kind of, it's, mm, it's not, it's like a, I don't know how to phrase it. It's almost like a man spreading situation, but like the space is not just mm. like the seat next to the CTA or whatever. It's like men just feel like because they're so safe and <laughs> because they're so privileged, they could just be like, we're going to talk. And so a lot mm-hmm. of times remind our business and it's like, hey, take off your earphones, take off your headphones. Are you, are you reading that book? Is that book good? It's like, I'm kind of getting in my zone because I'm going through customer service and it's awful. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to pretend to be nice to a stranger on the train. I, I, I have things. And walking that line of being nice so it doesn't become a lifetime movie, but also not being too nice because then like whatever the situation is, <laughs> it's always your fault, I think is a delicate line to walk, especially as like a femme. And so I'm not mad at her for being like, we're by a lake. We don't have witnesses. Please leave me alone a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, standoffish, but not confrontational. Because yeah. she does go along with him when they're walking back. Their cabins are right across from each other. So she can't really avoid him. So I think there is a lot of that. I don't think it's played super surface level of uh, i'm wary about this man i think it is just played at this already in built in protection mechanism for her right like i have to run into too many men like this so this is just how i approach every man right exactly and that is her right because the world is awful (laughs) um and so like that's all it is to it like it's it it, mm. It becomes this thing because you have men who just don't understand that, like, unfortunately, cis white men are usually the problem. And so, like, the Mm -hmm. odds of him not being the problem are so low. And look how it turned out. So she was right to be like, I don't want to do this. (laughs) Yeah. So, again, like, we we can look at this movie, we can laugh at this movie, but there are undertones that are just, like, a little too crude at home. Right. And I think that's what makes it work because, like, definitely tapped into a lot of things that are working and I think mm-hmm. working in Fanny's favor if we like evaluate it in the correct way. But I'm biased apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well and that's okay. Sometimes your bias is uh correct. Your bias is <laughs> on the mark. We kind of move along from there. The power goes out. That is kind of what sets this evening in motion. I'm always a sucker for a good like one night only type of movie, you know, from all the way back to Can't Hardly Wait. Uh, oh my God, Ethan Embry. <laughs> Ethan, little Ethan Embry. Seth Green, like, was probably 40, but still looked 15. I don't understand his timeline. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seth Green is a vampire. I remember watching Buffy and finding out that he was not the youngest. Like, he was actually much closer right. to Joyce's age. And I was like, good sir, <laughs> what are you doing? What are, what are these jeans? Green jeans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for whatever reason, Fanny is bored during this power outage. So she decides to come over to Fred's cabin and just talk, you know, just have someone to chill with. I guess she lowered her red flag warning system a little bit to to come over, have a beer with him. But, you know, her guard's still up, which makes sense because he's still being very like, I'm a writer and this is what I do. Like, okay. But I, yeah, I like from early on, she's pushing him 
And I don't know, I I guess I like that the story of the movie is constructed around that, right? Of It's not, I'm going to teach you something, or it doesn't feel presumptuous on her part. It's more like, I love telling stories. I love figuring out plotting. And if I can help someone else do that, that's cool. If it helps me, that's cool too. She's just doing her job. <laughs> basically yeah. while she's there she's like hey this is a different way for me to do my job right now he's basically getting free dramaturgy and he's mad about it <laughs> right right Which yeah so people lucky. get very upset if you try to dramaturge for them and they're not uh they're not uh, expecting it or what? even if they hire you as a dramaturge sometimes they get upset by what you bring <laughs> That's why I had to stop working with like random playwrights. I don't know because they'd be like, "I want you to dramaturg this. You're a dramaturg," and I'm like, "Sometimes yes." And then you give them a note, and I'm like, "No." And I'm like, "I'm, I'm telling you, you read a black character, and you're not black." I'm just saying, this is this is my experience. I was giving you a free thing, but I will go back to being like your commas are wrong, and this is the best script. <laughs> we can yeah. just go back to that. It's fine. Yeah, it's like what what do you really want here? So she. Asks about his werewolf story. That's kind of where all the storytelling starts from, because that is the idea he wants to do. And it's filled with a lot of cliches, right? A guy, a guy's parents are killed by a werewolf. That's not a story. So good. Just everything is very dry. And we kind of get his telling of the story. She's pushing him to add more details and things as he goes along. And this is where we kind of build things with the sound with cutting in a very cinematic way so that it like even though it's still just him telling the story it'll cut from like one character that he's portraying to the next or sometimes it'll just cut to a different distance as he's switching between characters you know you really got to stretch your facial muscles to do the type of work Josh Rubin's doing here <laughs> listen <laughs> I feel like there should have been some awards given just because, like, <laughs> they are both, specifically the two of them are just, like, different voices, different things, random prop here for this one. Mm-hmm. When Aya, in the grandpa story, throws herself back off of there's peanut butter, and I'm just like, I didn't, was it in the left hand or was it in the right hand? <laughs> like, what just happened? <laughs> Where'd the peanut butter come from? Where'd it come from? Always uh, a question. Where's the peanut butter? <laughs> right? <laughs> Again, it goes back to hiring more theater kids, like both of them have theater backgrounds, mm-hmm. and it shows that very well here. I am more right. of us for more things. Yeah, you can you can get those longer takes that you want that thrill all the all the viewers, right? <laughs> <laughs> but that story kind of comes to an end where Fred hits his knee on the coffee table, <laughs> and Fanny says, "And the werewolf hit his knee, or was that just you?" Um, always great always amazing i love her so much (laughs) yeah and then that's where this yeah the grandpa story that also involves peanut butter comes in i i do really like the grandpa story and how it unfolds over time it's it's just like that right kind of creepy pasta type of story yes and she just pulled it out of nowhere yes which again i love that because like especially in like workshops and stuff like that we're always sort of made to feel like we we don't know what we're doing our our stories are too mm. intimate which is called for there are too many women talking is what i've pretty much figured out okay <laughs> um, and so it's good to know i'll file that away so right? i can be like 
Let's choose your words here. What do you mean? <laughs> I've become a translator um, for notes given by problematic people. <laughs> um, mm. Woke and intimate. Those are the ones I'm like, okay, I see. This is not the theater for me. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but I just, I love that she, she's never like, oh, I'm going to think. I'm going to hesitate. She's just like, go, go, go. Next beat, next, mm. next beat. She's not in her head and she's not worried about impressing him. Like he is her, which is why he has so much start and stop. And why when she's like that, he's like, oh, um, um, given um because she's like i already know this is feels like an instinct it's kind of like it's kind of like people who have the gift of cooking and they can just like eyeball mm-hmm. things i am not a good cook so it's always bad recipe or no but it's what it feels like this is her ministry this is her lane it's not sex. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly she just is fluidly like having to push him for all these details that are things that aren't just like the werewolf does this, the boy does this, the mother does this in the werewolf story. She's just fluidly giving the details, right? We know where the the grandpa has this kind of Romanian vampire type accent. We know about all the types of food he eats is always like soft and soupy and, and gross. And that's like a detail. Uh, we know about the little girl, Cassie, who tries to poison her, her grandfather and ends up poisoning his dog instead. <laughs> And we get just a, a great use uh, of details coming in fluidly and a lot of good problem solving, right? I was just like, oh, I'm going to problem solve my way through this story. Right? Because I feel like there are times where she messes up, but she just keeps going and owns it as opposed to being like, oh, no. Like when she's using Cassie's little girl voice, she's like stunted by trauma. And I'm like, mm-hmm. This is the yes. sign of a good storyteller being like, I made a choice and now I'm going to rationalize it and keep going. So I'm not going to be like, oh, I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And not that trauma is funny, but that moment is is so funny to me. Right? No, as a writer who definitely spent most of her rascal time writing things in the last minute <laughs> and then having to figure out how to justify them to myself. I'm like, I'm like, going to justify this right now. Right? No, I think that's a good thing to do. Sometimes... It's better than leaving that open-ended thing, right? Justify it. If you need to edit it out later, great. But at least you know. Right? You tried it. You made a choice. Yeah. And I think that is, that's one of the reasons why I really love the grandpa story. Because, like, holding mm-hmm. up his werewolf story, which he started with, um, it's like one of them is a writer and the other one wants to be a writer. And it's very clear who is <laughs> Yeah. And that story ends with the grandfather you know coming back and, and sicking the ghost dog i don't know are they ghosts zombies i don't really know we don't get quite that far because fanny abruptly ends the story to say they need a break let's order pizza and then they order some pizza i i love that break because i'm just like uh where's the next story break and we also hear about this ex-wife. And so we start getting like even mm-hmm. more information about who Fred really is. Yeah, this is where I want. Yeah, that was a good question there. Because it, it's two ways that I think about it. Either one is awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel There's like no either option that we have here is awful. Either this is real. And like he was in a marriage that ended and was a terrible person <laughs> throughout it. Like what he's telling Fanny is correct. Or he's making it up to serve, like he's already planning for his last story, quote unquote. And so he's making up this thing to make him seem scarier when he wants to pay that off. And I wasn't sure what direction it was going. I never thought about the latter. 
that, then I'm going to go back the next rewatch and think about it like that. Because I always took it as this ex-wife is real. And I really don't think he understands how sending somebody that many letters and threatening to kill them is drastic. I mean, she cheated mm-hmm. on you. You have the right to be angry. You have a right to divorce her. But I feel like she's divorcing him. And I kind of wonder yeah. if she really cheated, if they were separated because of his temper. And that's what really happened. And he's turning that narrative around in his head as a privilege to do. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of like this idea that like he's already made a choice that this is going to go where it's going to go. Yeah. Yeah, because I feel like, I don't know, it could work either way, and I don't know. I don't think, I think either one works. It's still structurally sound for the movie, but I'm interested in that just because he had so much trouble coming up with the stories otherwise, and him having to take all that time to, like, plan it out kind of makes sense to me, right? Like, I needed this time to, like, actually make a scary story because I wouldn't have been able to improv this in the moment it also would be interesting if on top of that he knew she would be here mm-hmm. Ooh, i'm we don't want to rewrite this but also this is a juicy <sighs> theory and i and i want to i might put this back on again tonight and just be like okay fred flew in for this let's <laughs> see how that feels yeah no it's good to watch it both ways i, I didn't think of it until this last time watching it like it didn't it didn't occur to me to not believe what he was telling was the truth. Right? Because, like, it feels like a cute me where we're not going to have a romance, which I prefer to not have romance. Oh, no, I love that. I love that there's not even very much a hint at all, unless you're putting that on yourself, which, you know, that's fine, I guess, if you're the type of person who sees a man and a woman alone in a movie and thinks automatically that's (laughs) they have to get together. I never saw romance because I don't think Fanny would even on her worst day, be into Fred. But if there was a mm. moment um, at the end of the troll story when he's like, and then the troll and her, and I'm just like, Fred is a creep. <laughs> Fred's giving me a little bit of a creep. Yeah. It's not like overt yet, but also I'm picking up all of these breadcrumbs he's putting down. So he will make a move just because that's that's in the man bag. It's just like, mm-hmm. now that I've like impressed you or I should have impressed you and you're in my cabin and I bought you pizza. Because he keeps going back to he bought her the pizza. And I'm just like, you would definitely be like, well, I bought the pizza, so I think that we should just go ahead and do this. I, I don't think yeah. he's above it. I think he might put a little bit more, like, finesse on it. <laughs> a little bit more, not much. But I could see that, but not, like, a legitimate, and this is going to be a thing. We're going to go coupling. It's like, no. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he might have gotten so sore at that time that he's like, well, I didn't want to date you anyway. That kind of dude. <laughs> Or he might have just been like, I was so vulnerable, though. Why won't you, why won't you sleep with me? Mm-hmm. Um, which is another, I don't, <laughs> um, that could be a whole other podcast of like shitty things that men say to people. <laughs> it should be a podcast if it's not. So I'm going to take that idea. Yeah. <laughs> Each episode, just take one thing men say and unpack that. Right? I, so much luggage. So much baggage. Because, yeah, we need to know. I mean, I don't know that we always need to know why. We have very clear explanations for why this happens they're all systemic but but where are we going from there baskets you can eat that's what we're jumping into no no segue we'll just jump into it the troll story i love it love baskets you can eat and their little jingle and then this is one where they try to collaborate right they're trying to collaborate on this story together and tell it what is happening where did this troll come from he has no idea 
he just liked his little troll impression. His his golem impression that he <laughs> tried to turn into a troll. But Freddy does all of the heavy lifting because like yeah. Fred has nothing. Fred doesn't have a name. Fred doesn't know why the troll is a troll. Fred's just like, I like doing mm-hmm. this. And I'm like, you need more than that, Fred, sir. <laughs> if that's the one that she wrote down, that's in her right, because she did the heavy lifting. But also when she was supposedly nagging him in the werewolf, she was also giving him a lot of things to think about. <laughs> yeah. All these stories of hers, I I they just are. So like the fact that he's like, How dare you? When he brought nothing yeah. to the table. <laughs> right, and she doesn't yeah. even want the. I'm sure she doesn't want to write the werewolf story, regardless. No, so he wants to say he's a writer. He doesn't want to actually do the writing. <laughs> yeah, the writing, the thinking, the taking a step back and evaluating what you really want to do with your life. Listen. Maybe it's not writing. Listen. But um, <laughs> so Abbott Elementary hit me with a quote at two a.m. the other day that I was not ready for and is haunting me because <laughs> it was like, oh god, I think I know what it's going to be. Right, right. It was something like sometimes a dream is more of a distraction than a goal. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "How dare you attack me and all of my theater degrees? I'm gonna go sit in the corner." <laughs> I love it so much, and it's tell. Uh, why am I forgetting his name? The but janitor. the janitor character, yeah, no. is the one who says that to uh, the principal, uh, the the man who would want to be principal. <laughs> yes, no, it came out of nowhere because like. You're watching it, you're having a good time, and you're like, ouch, um, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, Abbott Elementary is wild like that, where I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm just watching this cute little teacher sitcom. No, nope. let me break your heart right? in a beautiful, thoughtful way. Yeah, like, I think we all need to hear it, because I think that sometimes we are a little afraid, and that we're like, this is what I'm going to do. But we don't have the motivation to do it. We don't have the tools to do it. And we don't actually want to learn how to do it. We just think we're going to like walk mm-hmm. out and be successful. And you have to do the work. As Rainey was saying, you have to do the work. You have to read the things you won't read. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to like hear notes and not get offended. You have to like actually put things on paper. <laughs> That's a big part of writing. Sorry about it. Yeah. <laughs> you have to put things on paper sometimes. You have to let other people know that you're doing a thing. They're not going to come to you. <laughs> oh my God. I've gotten so mad at people in this pandemic. <laughs> Again, most of them are usually like cis white men. I'm always talking about New Play Exchange, which is a very good resource for new playwrights who want their work read and they meet other playwrights. It's the way, it's the future, it is the noun. New Play Exchange. Listen. Sponsor us. <laughs> they don't right? have to do that. No, I, just give me some free merch and a couple free years and I'll, I'll keep singing the praises everywhere. Mm-hmm. But like, it's the only reason I've gotten most of the things I've gotten. But also, like, you can't just be on there and be like, well, I put my stuff up and the people are welcome. And so yeah, these guys put their stuff up and then they email me to be like, nobody's reading my stuff. What am I doing wrong? And I'm like, are you reading other people's things? And they're like, oh, I have to like, I, I thought it'd be easier. And I'm like, no, no one's waiting for you to upload scripts. There's a hundred bajillion playwrights all over the world. These scripts are everywhere. No one's waiting around to be like, I wonder if somebody in a basement in Colorado did anything today. Let me go search. You have to you have to engage the people. You have to read other people's scripts. You have to like put up work consistently. You have to do hashtags. You have to self-promote. You can't just be like, I, I wrote a script. Why am I not on Broadway? Like Yeah. Paula Vogel and Lynn Nottage took how long to get to Broadway? Most of us aren't going, and it's fine. <laughs> We're going to live. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe Broadway isn't where you want to go anyway, because that is a whole other problematic can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> like, Just look up Broadway Equity March, and you'll see. <laughs> I don't... 
I remember as a kid when I was first discovering theater because like we did not have theater in the home. I would see movies. I'd be like, written by a playwright? What is a play? Mm. And I was putting things together in my head because we'd have a computer. <laughs> and so like <laughs> I was like, oh, there's a thing called Broadway and that's what the plays are. And then you get older and you're like, that's not where the plays are. That's where mostly the musicals are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And most of the people who don't look like me <laughs> or my friends. And it's kind of the same stuff being redone and redone and redone. So I don't really want that. I want other things. And then you start finding out that some of those things aren't what you <laughs> It's a sandbox of sadness. But, like, we keep mm. doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Sandbox of sadness. Gosh. Right? <laughs> I'm so inspiring. <laughs> it's so... I, I, I can't hold on. How did we get from Abbott Elementary to Broadway to a sandbox of sadness? I don't know. But I'm all for it. Maybe I'll just wind us back towards the movie to an unsad moment. We get the troll story. And then that's finally when Carlo, the pizza guy, arrives, played by Chris Redd, who I'm so happy to see in this movie. I just feel generally this way for most SNL cast members that they're wasted on Saturday Night Live and amazing and everything outside of that. He's great. I love him in this. I love him in uh, Deep Murder as well. He just kind of shows up in these little... Vampires vs. the Bronx? Oh, yeah, he is in Vampires vs. the Bronx. Also love that movie. But, yeah, he's always just great in this role, which is like... I mean, it's the same things he's doing. He's a good comedic actor. That's just what he does. Whatever reason Saturday Night Live can't figure out how to use their cast in different interesting ways. (laughs) It's like, you can do this one thing that we found funny one time. You should do that again every sketch. Listen, Chris Redd is more than his Kanye impersonation. He's so much more than that. Yeah. And I want him to have so many things. Like, there are so many people on Saturday Night Live. I, I just want to do other things. And will it be sad that I can't randomly turn on my TV on Saturdays when I have nothing else going on in my life? And be like, there you are, Kate McKinnon. Yeah. But, like, we also mm-hmm. have these reruns forever and always. So, like, yeah. they serve their purpose. Um, If Keenan's happy there, he can stay. If not, leave Keenan, get out. And so it's fine. It's fine. It's a natural part of life to be like, leaving. Change is proof of life. I forgot who said it. I need to remember who said it because I keep saying that lately, but change is proof of life. Exactly. But for more on that, we'll turn you over to a Saturday Night Live podcast (laughs) (laughs) because I don't have the bandwidth to talk about it. But Carlo comes in. He is just kind of a... You know, he's up for anything. Not super motivated to be a pizza delivery guy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or just easily distractible. I'm not sure. But he comes in. He likes what they're doing. And he knows Fanny because he knows her book, Venus. And he's a big fan of her work. So he decides to spend some time with them and do some cocaine with them. And <laughs> as you do. And you're alone Saturdays. in a cabin. Yeah. Which I think is fine. Like, I think this is the right move. If there's a big winter storm that caused this power outage anyway, probably safer than driving around as a pizza delivery guy all night. Right? Like, I was like, good sir, don't go back out in that. Stay with Fanny. Yeah. And I think that Fanny also is like, stay with me. This does not feel right anymore. <laughs> yeah, it kind of comes in that weird moment at the end of the troll story. But actually, at the end of the troll story, it comes when they're having a bit more of a camaraderie moment. Mm-hmm. So it is an interesting place to break that, which I think is fortunate for her, right? So she didn't get pulled in more to a a friendship with him and actually met someone who's like, she can get along with easier and who actually is respectful. 
watching him get jealous, I was like, oh yeah, no, Fred's not okay. Because um, <laughs> like, yeah. you're like, is he gonna be passively problematic or is he gonna be like problematic, problematic? Because there, there are spells, mm-hmm. and he's just like really jealous because somebody else is like gave her attention, and it's not about him. It's about the focus. And I'm like, oh my god, this is my grad school again. Stop it! I see you. <laughs> so much. There's so much playing out there, and, and it's just a small thing. It doesn't really turn into a thread that like derails the movie. Like we still have the same storytelling things going on, right? They're still doing all of this work together, but you see the subtle changes in just demeanor and tone. I mean, Fred gets called an emasculated man by Carlo, uh, which is very... (laughs) I I like the directness. It's very good. (laughs) It was needed. It was needed because that is Fred's biggest fear, and that's his biggest fear, then he has no problems. And so I think that it's just good for us to remember who we're in this cabin with. Mm-hmm. I also like him tries to like he tries to like talk down to Carlo and he asked him where he went to college and Carlo is like one of the items I forgot I should know I do this for me sometimes Oxford yes it was Oxford thank you and he's like oh. <laughs> and I'm just like oh yeah you thought he didn't have an education because he's delivering pizzas ha 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 student mm-hmm. loans are real um <laughs> a lot of us are delivering pizzas <laughs> and yeah what we're gonna be doing for a hot minute so yeah and then maybe that's why he appreciates stories so much he had to deal with a lot of English literature at Oxford. I don't know. Listen. <laughs> I don't know what he was studying. I want to know more about Carlo. I could watch a whole movie just about Carlo. Give us the Carlo sequel. Right? If there is a sequel, I want to see Carlo living his best life, possibly him and Fanny having fun in California, writing things. Mm. That's the analogy I'm, I'm going to need because like, clearly, <laughs> Fred will not be joining us if we're going to the future. <laughs> well. Yeah. spoiler alert (laughs) uh that's the whole thing but they tell the story of venus really quickly because fred asked them to so fanny and carlo act out that book but it's not told we don't really get a lot of the plot details right it's kind of told in this very quick montage again through fred's selective attention right he's basically laying back not really listening to the story so we as the audience are only getting kind of them miming it and giving little bits and pieces of this zombie vampire epic that fanny wrote i feel like if they showed this clip to kids that would be the best (laughs) say no to drugs (laughs) um because like when you watch it you're like oh this is coke this is this is yeah he's on coke this is a lot of nonsense and Rain around and screaming, and this is terrifying. Yeah. Had I seen this at a formative age, I would have been like, I don't even want to drink. I'm good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want anything mind altering. Nothing. I don't give the title away. Keep it away. I'll just like suffer. <laughs> like, yeah. This and that mushroom scene from Midsummer, or oh I God. guess any scene with the drugs from Midsummer. <laughs> Best anti drug PSAs you can get. Horror right? movies. Where they are failed. <laughs> <laughs> dare failed. Um, horror movies pick up the slack. So, yeah. Oh gosh, dare. How dare you? Um, <laughs> so <laughs> we kind of get that story wrapped up. One more story: a singer getting possessed by the devil with an amazing song. I love this. <laughs> kill all the children song. <laughs> I don't agree. Don't kill the children, but it's very funny in this context. It's so funny. It's I. I think that this is sneakily one of my favorite stories. Because, like, mm. clearly Grandpa, and clearly he's a troll. <laughs> but I think that this is secretly, like, the one that's my favorite for not, like, quality reasons, but because I just laugh. 
Like, it, all you can do is laugh. Yeah. And you're just watching it. This one is also the most in character. There's very little problem solving. There's very little figuring out and them talking to each other about what's going to happen. So it kind of goes more into character and we get more separated isolation, more lighting and more really different staging than the others, which kind of bring us back and forth between like their imagined worlds and the actual location of the cabin. It's more even more into the experience, which is really cool. Because the movie's been doing that slowly and subtly all along, going from, it feels like I'm just listening to someone in a cabin, to actually I'm going into their mind and their vision of what this would really be like. And it's pretty cool. It's also the first time Fred is not in his head. And he's not worried about mm-hmm. trying to impress Fanny. And he's not worried about, like, why they're having more fun without him. <laughs> he's just, like, he's in the moment. Him and Carla are having beats on the couch. <laughs> they're in sync for the yes. dances. They're just there to support her, which is not something that Fred is doing this whole movie. He's or he's always, like, coming at her. And he's trying to nag her. And she's like, I don't have time for you. Yeah. I, I don't deal with sheep. I am the wolf. Good day, sir. And so this is him being like, oh, I can be second or third place and it's fine. We're having fun. It's communal. Mm-hmm. It was glorious. And I forgot for a minute whose cabin we were in and what could possibly be coming up. Yeah. Anything. Well, as it turns out, they saved the worst for last. Uh, not worst in this movie, just worst behavior. So she's ready to wrap up the night. It's 4 a.m. Carlo goes back on the road because he has a pizza that was due two hours ago somewhere else um, great detail i also like the detail of the the pizza shop itself the overlook mountain pizza place and it, at the bottom of his jacket it says it's gonna about oh tell him jack sent you tell him jack sent you, jack sent you. i love it I also love the weird pizza oh, watch. Yeah. It's such a weird detail. I have a watch that makes no sense. It's just a pizza. I don't understand. <laughs> how, like, how do I tell time with this thing? I also love that he has her sign the mm-hmm. next delivery. Um, yes. <laughs> I got your autograph. What right. Do I, do well, I, I don't think he's delivering that pizza is really what's happening. <laughs> that pizza will never be seen again. Uh and his line about how <laughs> you you meet your favorite author and a friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like and, one more and a Fred. Yeah, he's great. It's a nice so breath that kind of uh, lifts up this moment in the movie where we're like, okay, we're at a good height. The movie could probably end on like a lighter note if it wanted to go that direction. But it's a horror movie still. At the end of the day, it's a horror comedy. So this end, we get back into the horror. Uh, Before she leaves, Fred wants to tell one more story. And he says it's a psychological thriller about uh, a woman getting under a man's skin. And it's like, well, this isn't a story. This is just your feelings right now. (laughs) (laughs) Again, you still haven't learned what a story is. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, she's spent all night giving him free dramaturgy. And (laughs) he's just like, I can't, I can't retain. It's so abrupt because she comes back from the bathroom and it's a different movie. And you're just like, oh no, I think that the things that Fred Mm -hmm. has been putting down have like escalated and we're about to have a moment. Yeah. You don't know where it's going the first time you see it. And so you're like, yeah. Because I was like, clearly something's not right. The lighting was different. The playfulness was different. Like the entire (laughs) Josh Rubin as Fred persona was different. 
the shadow and even Franny picked mm-hmm. up on it because I'm like, oh no. Yeah, I wasn't oh, sure no. how they were going to play it the <laughs> um, first time either. I wasn't sure if it was like, it's going to get serious and then turn back to, to comedy or a fake out or whatever, or if it was going to go full, full horror. Where do you think it lands? Does it go one direction or the other, or does it land it's somewhere one of those, in the middle for you? There is this, I don't even know how to put it in words. There is a specific kind of dark humor almost a Phoebe Waller-Bridge, if you will, that just mm-hmm. exists. And so, like, it's like, this is okay. terrifying. Killing Eve season one. We don't talk about the rest of it right now, but season one. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there is this, there is where it's tense, but you're laughing, but sometimes mm. laughing because you're uncomfortable, and it's funny. And so, like, you're, like, in this, like, weird journey of emotions, and it's, like, playing with all of them on all levels, and they're all firing, and it's gorgeous. And that is his moment, because, like, we still have jokes. We still have Fred under this. When, like when the chase starts, he's like Fanny, and he's still falling, and he's still like I'm playing. But like also, you're playing this conversation of like it doesn't matter if he's playing. This power dynamic means mm. she's not safe, and she does not feel safe, and so it's fight or flight. So this could end badly for numerous reasons. Yeah. So you're like they both might be in danger. She specifically is in danger. So I'm worried about her <laughs> because this is not going to end. And so like you're like oh god. And then she's hiding under the bed. Yeah. Oh God! And like, I I think that the scariest really moment of this movie do, is when she stands up and the light comes on and he's behind her because you're just like, Mm-mm. <laughs> um, right? That's when I was like, this really is a scary movie because you almost forget because it's so passively dark and funny and twisty and turny yeah. that you're like, oh no, this is on Shutter. Yeah, <laughs> someone might get that poker, and it might be now. <laughs> um, so and someone does get that poker, and when he uh, does, look what you did. <laughs> That's what he says to her. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, just even I, at the point of death, I, cannot let you, go. Of <laughs> maybe it's your responsibility to not be a toxic asshole. Maybe that's on you. <laughs> and not this woman that you're putting all these your own expectations and ideas on. Listen, I look what you did. I was just playing. Yeah. And then ask her to finish him off. And I'm like, no, no, no. You traumatized her enough. Good sir. <laughs> like you you've fallen on your own weapon. Just go ahead and did yourself. Like <laughs> Yeah. And I'm is that kind of why you think she doesn't really do anything about it? Because I feel like she just leaves. She doesn't even I mean, I she's so traumatized uh, in shock at that moment she doesn't even take her notebook with her right it's like oh that was really messed up and to see even even if he wasn't actually planning to like uh, i'm gonna put quotations around harm because like just the situation itself even as a joke that is still harmful jokes can be harmful still you calling something a joke doesn't make it not harmful (laughs) no it, it goes back to, again, men not understanding mm-hmm. the space they take <laughs> um, and the power dynamics because, like, he he's threatening her. Whether or not he thinks it's a joke, he's yeah. threatening her. And, like, he's yelling at her and he's chasing after her with a weapon. So, like, how are you supposed to take that? But, like, in Fred's world, mm-hmm. it's a joke and she needs to calm down and chill out about it. And, like, if the authorities yeah. got involved, they'd be like, well, ma'am, what did you do? Um, because this is unfortunately America still. So like it's it's always like, oh no, I was joking and then you hurt me. 
And it's like, but what were you and the other boys doing to this little girl who like hit you all in the face real quick? Let's talk about that. Right. Let's talk about <laughs> what you instigated. Yeah. You, Always. I meant this violent right? assault as a joke. Why can't you just laugh? Like, oh. Doesn't right? make it any less assault. It's like catcalling. <laughs> and when a woman gets mad about being catcalled, it's like, mm-hmm. why can't you just take a compliment? Because you yelling <laughs> from your yeah. car is no compliment. It's creepy. This is a dark street. And you slow down to yell at me. I'm going to say what I'm going to say because like, I don't know how it's going to end anyways. <laughs> you did this. You decided this. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that she's kind of in shock and just leaves. And we don't really know what happens for her from there. It's just kind of like, wow, this terrible thing happened to me. I'm going to go with that. (laughs) And Fred dies there in that cabin. But that's not quite the end of the movie because we get our favorite character from the beginning, Bettina, coming by to pick him up. Love her. She's just kind of walking around, doing her own thing, calling out to him to try to see where he's at. She takes a bite out of the the cold leftover pizza that's there. Uh, but I like that she is also like, She's I'm just having some of your person. pizza here. I just I love her so much. All like great. Free food? Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. Any day. I would, yeah. No, I'm the type of person who would probably ask before I dig in, but someone's offering it to be fair she's gonna yeah. pick him up so whatever is there is probably trash at this point and so she's like well you're gonna toss it anyway she's gonna yeah. take it on the plane uh, i don't judge her at all no <laughs> he owes her that pizza like <laughs> yeah he owes every woman he's mentioned but in this movie a pizza he yeah i think yes. josh rubin <laughs> if you're listening you owe us all a pizza <laughs> on behalf of fred <laughs> on behalf of the fair. character you created <laughs> Uh, maybe I just want a pizza because Carlo is accurate. It doesn't matter if you really like you the can. pizza that you're eating and making, you can eat it every day. I worked at Domino's and that's some of the trashest pizza. And I still would eat it every day when I worked there. Listen, I sometimes it's right though. I can't explain it because like Domino's is not my favorite chain, but sometimes <laughs> it's the only thing I need. It's all I need. <laughs> um, and you have to know. There's something in it. Yeah. There's just something you need. They gotta no, they got like, that formula. It is. I don't know what it, it really what it is. is. <laughs> it's in the sauce. <laughs> I think it's whatever's in like the same thing as those <laughs> lunchable pizzas, which are so disgusting, but I, I was obsessed with as a middle schooler. Whatever it is about that, that's basically what you're getting with a Domino's pizza. Um <laughs> I just love that Lunchables was like this great big line we were given as a child. So we will start understanding that we want to make adult Lunchables later in life. And now it's called charcuterie. And I'm like, I just spent $40 to make my own giant Lunchable. That's what I just did. (laughs) Mm. I was programmed. (laughs) Yeah. It's the gateway. The gateway to charcuterie. (laughs) It's like now I'm eating sharp cheddars and fancier crackers. And I'm having wines that Capri Sun. I made it. Yes. But the last beat of the movie is Bettina finds the notebook and then she becomes a published author uh, by publishing the stories from this that happened over this movie in a collection called, you guessed it, Scare Me. Uh, I like that ending. Oh, and the credits was very interesting to me. This was part of what maybe 
Well, I guess this could go either direction, but I guess part of what made me think that the Meredith story was made up is that in parentheses, the woman who's putting out the sign at the end, the bookstore worker, she's called Meredith in parentheses. Oh. So I'm like, is that a clue? Does that mean something? Uh, Conspiracy theories abounding. Now I want that because, like, <laughs> I I want this because it makes Fred darker. Like he, ooh, um, <laughs> this is a Christopher I Nolan have. character now. No, yes, I, I want him as a Christopher Nolan character, right? I can also see it being like a nod because, like, the bookstore clerk is Lauren Sick, which is that is Josh's fiance. It's like, mm-hmm. so I say, I feel like an in joke for whoever put the credits together. Yes. But I also want Fred to be more of a villain because that's where I'm at at this point in time in my life. And so let's let's make her Meredith. Let's, what if she is the real Meredith and she doesn't know these stories and this Fred in this book are the Fred that she has finally gotten rid of? Oh, yes. That's great, too. I like that, too. Uh, the circumstance. You don't really, you don't recognize the coincidence as it's happening. Because who would? Right? You're just like, Fred's a common name. Mine left me alone. I don't ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know what he's up to. Right? But you kind of mentioned this, but now this is this is the question uh, that we have to make a hard choice about. What is your favorite story? Your actual favorite story from the stories in this movie? <laughs> I can't. Oh, my God. This is. <laughs> You're like, ready. I'm ready to go. I don't know. Oh I made God. a decision I... last night. I was like, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to go with it. I can't. Um, I... As far as like actual storytelling from start to stop with humor and creepy factor, I mean, Grandpa's the best story. Let's be honest. Grandpa's the best yes, story. Correct. However... Not that an opinion been... can be a correct or incorrect, just a... I love Listen. Grandpa. <laughs> no, it, it's the best one. Like, it's the one I tell my friends I'm watching, like, when I do the artsy movies, you know? Like, this is the one that I would, like, put up for this nomination. Mm. But, like, the Big Talent Show Live is the one that I secretly love the most. Like, I just laugh. I can't not laugh. Like, yeah. I pre-laugh. I know all the cues and all the beats. I could probably do it and read it myself. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's the one that's like, this is me. But this is what I tell people. You know, it's the fake one. It's like, I, this is what we shall aspire to. Meanwhile, the big talent show live and I are overeating Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, we'll uh there's two of us, so we'll go with both. Grandpa and Big Talent Show Live tie for Thank best you. story. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> there's always an out with the call right? inside. There's always an out. But <laughs> yeah, overall, super recommend. I'm glad that you're yeah, such a fan of this film because it's so it's small, right? It's a small little movie. Small cast, a cool debut, uh, very thoughtful and self-aware. I'm glad that Josh Rubin was uh, working with the ideas, right? The thematic ideas that are, are really important. So, I, and I, do, I think it's in a way that doesn't come across as super judgmental just because yeah. it is in a genre theme. Like, I feel like if you really have the thick skin that you say you do, uh, angry cis white men maybe you <laughs> no. can take the take the joke <laughs> right no, i i love this movie because he josh talks a lot about how he was writing this as he was reading all of the me too stuff that was coming out because like all of these people 
who as an actor or a person in Hollywood you want to look up to and aspire to be were coming out as like awful bastards. Mm-hmm. And so he was like processing all of these names coming up. I don't know why I'm flipping imaginary pages. Like people still read physical things and so don't get on the internet. Oh, I liked it. I wasn't sure it was happening, but yeah, flip no. those pages. They're looking at like, <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> <laughs> Full service ghost. Um, but he was like reading all these awful things and he was trying to figure out how to be a better ally and people were like complimenting him and thanking him. He's like, I'm just sharing shit on Instagram. I, I feel like I should be doing more. Why is this yeah. so why is it so easy to be a better ally as a white man? Why are we awful? And so I I love that his processing led to this because not anything about him when I saw this movie, I was like, this is a weird feminist love letter to Peter Pan. Um and all of those things are so right. And I think that as writers, we sometimes try to be other people or try and get like heady or into things as opposed to being honest with where we are and who we are in the moment. Mm. And some people are like, what is this? I don't know what this is. And so I think that's one of the reasons why this works so well is because I feel like I'm being let in on somebody's like headspace in a moment in time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a long way to say something so simple. I just <laughs> no no I I think it needs the unpacking so that's good and I think it also was really helpful I would say to werewolves within as well to having explored maybe that more internal place and more of a limited like experience the dynamics that happen in werewolves within that are more community um, and based about ideology differences is stronger because of that it is so yeah, we're we're adding in another a triple feature with this. Uh, we're gonna have scare me and werewolves within, and then a third movie on top of that. Yes. But you know what? This is wrapping up our our horror comedy month anyway. So why not add a third movie into it? Might as well. <laughs> yeah, might as well. What are you doing this weekend? You're not going anywhere, right? You're at home watching horror movies anyway. Make them ours. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody's on the shutter like i i love when i'm just like what are we all watching and there's like 90 different recommendations and i'm just like oh no but that is a good segue into the internet where can we find you on it awesome um my personal shenanigans are on twitter and instagram at miss Sheree. i also have a lot of podcasts but you can <laughs> you can find those links in my bio on twitter um or you can find at a nightmare fierce on twitter at Brody massacre on twitter and the offer tapes is under anatomy of a scream pod squad so you have to go through them mm-hmm. to find us or just like in the offer tapes wherever you listen to podcasts yeah. that one is a newer baby and i love her because like the alter shorts on youtube <laughs> um we need to give them more attention because that's where the people who are not the friends get to like <laughs> practice their craft mm-hmm. and make their shorts and a lot of them are really good so yeah yeah and developing towards our future full-length filmmakers right yes i mean yeah if you like things like any i guess anthology movie or something like that. Getting into horror shorts is really helpful. But I think, yeah, that's a good service of the altar tapes is just having someone to walk you through it. It can be really hard to invest in shorts because they don't get the attention of full-length movies. So you don't have like the kind of commentary or the people to to bounce ideas off of. So it's a really cool thing. And you rotate uh, hosts on that show. There's eight of us, so like if you're like, I hate her voice, there's seven other hosts, you can just skip <laughs> my two episodes every other month. <laughs> um, and I don't, I hope not. <laughs> I, 
I never know. Um, but yeah, we have both halves of Girl That's Scary, which is one of my favorite horror podcasts. We have Brother Ghoulish. We have Joe from Horror Queers. We have mm-hmm. so many people. Like, if you're even like flirting with um, the people who do horror things on Twitter, you'll know some of those names. And all of them are like funny and have really good taste. I've yet to see something I did not like. Mm-hmm. And we all spend a lot of time on altar, so like we know where to go for the goal first. And we'll get to okay. the other places when we get there. But like we're opening with the good stuff. So it's a good time to hop on. <laughs> Perfect. Well, give all of those things a listen. Uh, or just type in Sheree's name into your podcast of choice. You'll probably find a lot of different things that you're interested in. <laughs> um, but it was great having you as a, a guest with us today at Calls Inside the Podcast. I don't know why I'm like cracking my knuckles right now. I'm like, I don't want it to end. Don't let it end. No, great conversation. I'm sure we will come back to something. We have a good list of things that I, I really desperately need to talk to you about <laughs> like uh, vampires versus the Bronx. Like. I, I found that movie on accident because I, I'm always like, where are the people of color in horror that are making the movies? Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to find them, even though they're out there, but they don't get advertising. And so like, I was at Netflix one night and I was like, uh, what, what, who? And I hit play and it was a funny movie and Chris Red was there. So, you know, it's a good time. And so, uh, it's oh, so good. It's so I good. Method Man is there a beast like you have to see it like i i know we're talking about it later in life but people should see it now it's on netflix (laughs) we've made it a quadruple feature so yeah your weekend is stacked and you're welcome (laughs) yes and you're welcome and you know what while you're at it keep it creepy while scare me leaves much to the imagination in its depiction of horror storytelling The Cabin in the Woods goes big, with broad satire of the state of the horror genre as of the early 2010s. Having recently passed its 10-year anniversary, as of April 13th, we look back to see if this cabin still has load-bearing logs, and if it still holds up in the current horror era. Just, Just to, like, sort of ease my nerves, I just watched, like, a musical theater clip which is like kind of the complete opposite of what we're about to discuss well (laughs) it's got got caught up it made my made my heart feel warm yeah what musical theater clip it's from pippin the latest revival it's just a clip of andrea martin singing a song and there's like crazy acrobatics involved and it's actually a little anxiety inducing and she's like probably 70 or something so that's what i do yeah i'm very much in a musical theater (laughs) kick right now so i'm like yeah Yeah, show me any clip i love horror and musical well horror and theater are my two Mm -hmm. my two loves same oh good yeah okay (laughs) right on the (laughs) same page i mean Mm -hmm. i just watched a, a horror musical because i found there's a a copy i mean my my slime tutorial searching oh this tutorial death death note the musical which is very exciting it's a a wild ride should check it out there if you there must be a slime tutorial but have you seen american psycho the musical no 
I'm sure there's a slime tutorial. I've heard it it's very good. Pretty, it was pretty great. Short lived. Oh. I don't think people were ready for for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I enjoyed it. And then, of course, my favorite currently, the one that I think worked really well, and it played here in Chicago a few years ago, and I'm sad that I dis- dismissed it at the time, but there's the the Rage Carrie 2 unauthorized musical. That's amazing. <laughs> By Preston Max Allen. I was, wow, I don't, oh, I didn't see that, but I just recently was like looking at different productions of the musical Carrie at the deconstruction mm-hmm. scene because I was mm-hmm. like, there needs to be like you this is so delicate and this has to be done right and i've i actually found a clip of a theater that actually it was really scary and and not just you know like cgi flames and blood yeah it's like here's some red honey i was like this is let's not forget that this is terrifying this is musical theater but it's also like one of the most devastating horrific moments yeah Hopefully come back to that some sometime soon. Great. Welcome to The Calls Are Coming From Inside, the podcast. We're here inside this week with Jan Rosenberg, a playwright, screenwriter, uh, writer for audio media, and of course, very important for us, a horror fan, a lover of all horror media. Hello. Hello. <laughs> And we can find more of your work at janrosenberg.com. Isn't that right? This is true. Most of the goings on will end up there, sometimes on social media, but that <laughs> is my, <laughs> my website. Yeah. Now, I always like talking with playwrights. There's this weird overlap where maybe it's just because I, you know, work in theater. I'm a playwright, too. So I just get drawn to people who do that similar thing. But uh, playwrights like horror. Is what I'm finding. Have you found that too? <laughs> I I hope that's true. I feel like I'm always searching for more theater that is that is inherently terrifying, and I haven't mm. seen a lot of plays that I feel like really get horror and do it well. But when I find them, it is the most exciting experience. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of horror friends. I have lots of theater friends, but not a lot of people I can talk horror with. <laughs> oh, right. Not the exciting. overlap. <laughs> yeah, I haven't really I haven't really met those folks yet. They're out there if anyone wants to talk horror with me. <laughs> well, that's what we do here, right? We're here to mm-hmm. be the, the horror <laughs> chat machine. I don't know. That's another way we could talk about a, a podcast. Mm-hmm. It's just the yeah, digital chat right. machine. Exactly. Thank God for podcasts. <laughs> yes, but I, I definitely love the, I, I agree. I like having a good overlap of horror in a theatrical setting, if it can be done well. Usually if that's what you focus on, it gets done pretty well. But also really, mm-hmm. it's a hard sell sometimes, I think. Right? It's like, yeah, do you have yeah. enough difficulty getting people into like a theater or to see a film? like? Trying to get someone to sit through a, a horror live experience can be can be a challenge. Yeah, it is my absolute pleasure. I actually saw a play recently where it was, it definitely was horror and it was unexpected, but delightful for me, but I could hear the majority of the audience 
during those moments just like completely losing their shit and not mm-hmm. in a good way and i was like oh this is fun this is fun for me anyway yeah i always say every everything is horror i think there's horror in everything yeah there's there's always a little bit of the absurd sublime mm-hmm. that would come up more with a a david lynch discussion that's a whole separate thing. But I did I did write it down for something in here. So I have to look back at my notes. We'll come back to it. Um, so we have an interesting pick here. But I guess as a starting point for you, uh, I guess, first of all, are you generally drawn to the subgenre or the overlap of horror and comedy? And then what makes a horror comedy effective? I think it's interesting. In general, I don't think I go looking for the horror comedy when I do find them I'm usually pleasantly surprised I was looking up like other horror comedies that I like for me I find even like just straight up horror that isn't horror comedy I find a lot of horror is inherently funny Mm. (laughs) in some Mm -hmm. way in either like a very subtle or absurd way I feel like anytime I've been in a theater watching a horror movie, just a straight up horror movie, that's not like there's always that like those moments of laughter because everyone is Mm -hmm. a little like so uncomfortable or nervous. And then like there will be like one beat drop that is just so funny and relieves the tension. Mm -hmm. And um, I think my favorite horror comedies, they come from actual, I mean, horror content creators that clearly love the medium even if they're a little like jaded by it Mm -hmm. i think my favorite horror comedies are the ones where you can't quite tell if they are supposed to be horror comedies and yeah two i noted um i mean one's like been around for a while and then another is more recent i would call american psycho like kind of standing in both buckets a little of like horror comedy and then and I'm still not sure if Malignant was supposed to be funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. that's a good question. <laughs> I found it kind of hilarious and also horrifying. Mm-hmm. And then I also love, you know, I love Beetlejuice. I love Hocus Pocus. The very first one we covered this month, tying it back, we're coming full circle to Beetlejuice. <laughs> Speaking of like horror and theater... Now Beetlejuice is a show too. Yes, Beetlejuice is back. If you're in the <laughs> the New York area, Beetlejuice yeah. is back. They called him up again and never died. Yeah. So that's kind of my how I feel about horror comedies. And then you know, just to talk about the movie we're about to talk about, it's funny because like I I didn't realize what I was going to see when I saw it. I went in like mm. very blind. And I think if I had known, it would not have been like my first pick to go check out. And, you know, once I, w- when I saw it, I was like disproven of <laughs> my own biases. I do love a horror comedy. I think I just, I'm very picky and I'm just, I'm kind of just like, don't mess this up. Like, <laughs> yeah. Don't waste my time. Yeah, because I always want something that feels maybe more satirical, 
maybe that's what I'm finding. <laughs> that usually works, yeah. but it has to also be satire that kind of enjoys the genre it's working in. Mm-hmm. So good segue, because I feel like Cabin in the Woods, the movie we're talking about today, does do that. I think it appreciates horror movies, but it also wants to satirize something uh, about them, about where the kind of state of horror movies were at the end of the 2000s. And so that's a great idea. So what about it? I guess going back to that beginning, because I usually like to get into the question of like, what was it like the first time you saw it? So what do you feel like maybe those biases were or what what did you expect from the movie? So the thing is, I this was a rare one for me where, I mean, somehow this movie had really kind of, it just was not on my radar. And I heard a lot of hype about it. It was still in theaters. And the hype, I somehow managed to like hear the hype, miss any spoilers. Mm. And so I kind of was just like, you know what? Everyone's talking about this. Like, let's go see it. Because, you know, I do love seeing horror movies. I don't think I even had seen a trailer. I was really just like trusting all the raves. So I went in completely blind. And this is just so insane to me. But I, in the first 15 minutes, I was almost like, I'm going to go. Like, I had a moment of like, is, and this is why, because this is, you know, like now obviously this is kind of the point of the movie, but I had, <laughs> I had not even like read a synopsis or watched a trailer. So I thought I'd been sucked into watching yet another predictable horror movie. And I mm. got very angry. And so I had a moment, like I actually went, I went to get like more popcorn because I was like, okay, if I'm going to stay here, I'm getting some more snacks. <laughs> so I, it's possible, I probably missed like five or 10 minutes, but like, I sat back down. It was still before, you know, the first kind of reveal of what's actually going on here. And I, <laughs> so happy I stayed. It was one of the most enjoyable theatrical movie experiences I've had with heart. It was so much fun. And it just, it really, it stuck, it stuck the landing. It's not, I mean, I had no expectations and then it just sort of, blew my mind Mm. and i guess that was my math good this movie's (laughs) my math any good this movie's i felt like it was older it's like a decade old yeah i think well there'll be we'll get into that in a minute but yeah it it is just celebrating its 10 year anniversary i suppose of its release in april of 2012 so we're right there it yeah yeah, it feels both like yeah that seems right and also like no that's not true that this movie is that i feel both ways about it and it's it's definitely one of my all-time favorites and i it's one of those like i think the experiences of watching it is so Mm. special and you to me that it's not one like i think i've probably this is probably the third or fourth time I've watched it. I kind of like, I don't want to like make it so I remember everything. Mm-hmm. I like to be a little surprised again. And I still kind of got to have a bit of that experiencing, not like remembering every single beat. Yeah. And I had a great time. I love this movie. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel. I mean, I don't watch it super frequently, but I do feel like it's one that I maybe as a comfort film or that kind mm-hmm. of 
vibe from it, right? Where I just feel very familiar with it because I saw it. I was looking forward to it. I guess the opposite is I did. I went in having a lot of expectations, a lot of things to say. We probably won't get into the whole conversation about Joss Whedon, who sucks. And like, that's, that is what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's a baggage you're going to carry into it. It definitely influences how I think about this movie now. But that was an expectation I had going in. I just didn't know if it was going to be like a full on horror movie that was kind of poking fun of itself just within the cabin genre, like uh, maybe even going more towards a spoof, which is different from what the movie actually does. And I appreciate that. But I guess my expectation was it would be wackier, but more contained to the cabin. And as we'll talk about, other things happen. So spoiler alert for listeners, if you haven't seen Cabin in the Woods, but we'll probably get into some of the spoiling details, because I think... I wouldn't say it's a spoiler necessarily, but the very start of this movie it, it <laughs> changes whatever expectation you might have, I think, about it. So that's just something to be aware of. Getting into the background. So part of the reason it might feel older than that 10 years is because it took almost three years, if not exactly three years, to come out. The movie was shot in March to May of 2009. and then. Yeah, the production companies, so I think MGM and United Artists were in a lot of financial trouble at the time. So it was produced under those studios. They weren't able to release it, and so it kind of took another couple years for it to be picked up by Lionsgate, which then released it in April of 2012. And now here we are, having a great time. So I think that if there's anything, uh, I don't know, to sell this, sell people on this movie, I, I think it does walk that line. The writers kind of talk about it as, the writers Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard talk about it as kind of a loving hate letter to the horror genre, which I don't know how deep you want to get into the, this kind of uh, infighting, I guess, between subgenres. Mm-hmm. I, I personally don't really care for that distinction so reading that made me like turn me off a little bit just to like the thought process going into this movie still love the movie I think it's it's working on its own level but it was more I guess an intention to kind of fight back against kind of quote-unquote torture porn and this style of very violent grisly maybe grittier films of the time that the 2000s was very much I guess I agree to some degree. It was a little bit imbalanced towards that aspect of like what you would see in Saw or Hostel or even all of these remakes like Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake and on and on that there's there was kind of a joylessness, which is interesting. But I don't know. My personal feeling is like there's room for both if you're into that. But maybe I'm curious about your your feelings related to different genres right is it fair i guess for a movie like this to kind of try to call out or say something about a completely different genre of movie i know i mean i i actually did read that too after doing a rewatch and um it was a like that commentary was a bit harsher than i feel what came across in the movie and Mm -hmm. i think 
whatever they were intending, maybe sort of their underlying message to be at the time, I feel like there are so many more layers beyond that. And like, particularly watching it 10 years later, I was affected very differently, especially by the way it ends and just this idea of Mm. surveillance and the way the world, you know, we see horrible events happening all around us through every screen every day and the way we were very, you know, we're just kind of desensitized or we have moments of empathy, but they're Mm -hmm. so fleeting. And I think like there are scenes, I mean, I guess we'll get into them where just watching it now, I, I was just like, you know, not that I think like that happened by accident, but no, no, you know, and today it's so hard to like, just like, it's so hard to not to like take into account like the last few years when watching movies. But I think I, I yeah. saw something very different where it is, it is quite intense. The whole, the whole idea of it, it just, it brings up so many questions and almost like this could happen to us mm-hmm. <laughs> sort of thing and like how would you behave and would you like you know would you act selfishly or what what is the more selfless act right to sacrifice yourself yeah. to preserve a system that that hurts most people or to wipe it all clean to upset the system yeah. because even early on Marty, Fran Kranz's character, does talk about when they're on their way to the cabin about changing the system, right? Or letting society crumble. He says very directly, Mm -hmm. like, society should crumble. I mean, there's a lot of... (laughs) Some strange, slightly anarchistic sentimentality in it. But in a metaphorical way, I I suppose I would... (laughs) I would agree, or I can at least understand that point of view. I mean, I think a lot of people... (laughs) kind of have it it's like you know i mean i know this is really dark but it's like should we just why are we why are we fighting so hard to save something that like a people (laughs) that cause so much hurt Mm -hmm. and damage and you know there are people that are still fighting and and i think this movie is literally like but if you're given a if if these are your options (laughs) it's like it could all end tonight or like if you do this one morally wrong thing that would prevent that and then you know so the cycle can begin again what would you choose and i think it's um it's so interesting and it and it's very like it hits pretty mm-hmm. hard and that's why i like this like it's a horror comedy but i'm just like damn there's some <laughs> there's some heavy stuff i think it yeah it hits you maybe more mm-hmm. afterward just because it is such a a light tone at times or at least the like thematic part of it is presented a bit a bit more in the comedy. Uh but that's, you know, satire. It does that. <laughs> well, maybe we can kind of start bringing in elements of the plot. As I always say, I'm not usually that dictated on like hitting every single plot moment or going scene by scene. We'll probably hop around to things that feel like the most relevant. But I guess Focusing on things to bring us back to this main point, right? What is the thematic aim or goal of this movie? Because I think without that, then it would just be another cabin in the woods, right? It would be another <laughs> Evil Dead ripoff or whatever it might look like from the surface. But 
it does kind of jump in right away. There's the preoccupation with reproduction. That's a whole <laughs> maybe other reading. We're going queer reading city in this, but um so yeah, I think maybe that's also why the scope of it is appealing like just as a queer viewer, I do find like it's a very heterosexual <laughs> movie or heteronormative movie in a lot of ways, but it's also upsetting that idea. And what I found interesting on this watch is like the very first lines are about fertility. So Hadley, Bradley Whitford's character, is talking with Sitterson, Richard Jenkins, about trying to, um, they're working on fertility, him and his wife. They want to have a baby and they haven't had one and he's older. So there's like that kind of personal drama happening as we see them in their work environment, right? And we don't totally know what they're doing at this point. We think they work for some type of government agency or something. But I thought it was interesting to start from that standpoint of being really concerned with yeah. being able to have a baby, which is interesting where the movie goes from there. Exactly. I had, I mean, I had not remembered that. That is literally the first kind of like water cooler mm -hmm. conversation that they're having. Like you have, at this point, you kind of have no idea like what is going on. Yeah. Especially if, yeah, like you said, you didn't watch necessarily trailers or things beforehand, but I don't think any of that's really in the trailers. So you're like, well, who are these guys? Yeah. Well, I read something that was actually like, they wrote this scene mm -hmm. trying to like, they wanted it to be confusing and be like, did you like walk into the wrong movie by accident? And it's actually, it's one of my favorite um, title card moments where it's like so insane and yes. all of a sudden that. Yes it just gets thrown up there and you just hear like, I think it just like screaming and it is like, it's like, okay, you know, I'm in, I'm in the right movie. <laughs> yeah. Just a scream just scream a cabin in the woods at me. I'll, I'll pick up the ball. I'll go from there. Yeah. But yeah, that title card scream leads into kind of our main, mm -hmm. our, our second main characters. There are two overlapping storylines. The people who are trying to prevent an apocalypse basically. And then we get our, our college age friends who you have to have in this type of movie. So I guess overall, I'm not going to jump through all of the like little mm -hmm. things, but how do you feel about these characters? Maybe we can get an, an overall, because I try to think about, you know, there's always a place for even uh, movies with less on their minds, right? Like a, a Friday the 13th or... Um, things in that kind of slasher vein right which again this is emulating a lot there's a, a reason for that so I guess I'm curious about like how do you feel about this group of characters and like what they're programmed to do as that's a really interesting thing yeah it's funny because like once you have it's really hard to reverse your knowledge of this movie when you're watching it a second time so I don't know if that I mean, it must have affected my mm -hmm. watch, but I think like almost immediately it's established kind of like the archetypes or the stereotypes, you know, it's kind of like the show don't tell thing, but like it comes into play. Like there's yeah. the jock, there's like what in this movie they literally call the whore, of course, because like, mm -hmm. you know, it has to, she has to be a whore. She can't just be like... <laughs> 
the sexual positive and the virgin who's like you know usually ends up being the final girl the scholar I believe they call him which is just sort of like in this case just like the nicer jock <laughs> yeah like the yeah all the guys are kind of the jock <laughs> even yeah but i i love yes i love marty who is the stoner because you need you need that one stoner character who will like somehow figure out in yeah his, it's very in their haze they somehow like figure out exactly what's going on ties he ties a lot together and he carries a lot of the comedy which is great great for fran Kranz. he oh he does i, I love marty so much i think like it's established very quickly i mean it's almost just mm-hmm. like let's like do the whole like you know full house like sitcom intro here's who everyone is now like let's let's get in the rv and let's go yeah and that's why like at that point i was just kind of like oh here we go another another one of these movies on my first watch i just was like oh i which yeah means they were doing their job was i was like i know who these people are i've seen them before and like you said it's all very heteronormative and then there's like what there's an odd number of them, so like I'm, they're not like completely <laughs> partnered up, and you know, I mean, I mean in this movie, well, there's always got to be one, right? You got to have someone who's yeah, ju- has to be yeah. alone, right? So they can get killed off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I do think there's you know there's some weirdness to them, right? They're not all exactly fitting to their archetype which you see come in and out throughout the movie and that's i mean that's an important part that we discover in the end right of like yeah the people who run this whole program are doing the best they can right but in a modern setting maybe it doesn't work as well as it did when Mm -hmm. uh norms were even harsher right so i think that's an interesting part of the movie where like these people that we're following don't really conform to all of the standard tropes or archetypes and they have to be molded or programmed to fit more into them. And that's something, yeah, just as a thread that we discover throughout the movie Mm -hmm. that even before they go to the cabin, there's this government agency or paragovernmental agency. I don't even know what they are. (laughs) I guess I would assume they're government, right? Like, Mm -hmm. because each country we see has their own version of this. (laughs) paranormal apocalypse averting yeah group and i mean they no you're right they get in very early as we mm-hmm. learn later like what methods they're using to try and control them even before they they leave for the cabin but they do make their way to the cabin of course on their way up we get a creepy gas station moment you have mm-hmm. to have that and that's harbinger of the harbinger of doom yeah it's a very that scene is played pretty straight. Like that feels like a very, just any old horror movie moment. So I could also see that being like a a moment where you're like, okay, wait, did I get duped or tricked into just seeing a plain old horror movie? But there's still, Mm -hmm. it it sets up the joke later on of the self-seriousness of this Harbinger that I love. Mm -hmm. And I think there's this, one scare in it where the harbinger is revealed that I just really like. I just like Jesse Williams' reaction, like when he gets scared. It's very, mm-hmm. but it also set up this thread of he has like a lot of just really great 
unvoiced reactions in this movie. <laughs> like he just does a lot of really great <laughs> facial expressions, body language stuff that I'm like, oh, this is really fun. Oh, yeah, oh, that tracks. But yeah, they get scared by this kind of, I don't know what to call this gas station owner. <laughs> just this grungy gas station scary guy. Yeah. Conservative or that he calls Jules a whore, just like yeah. quite pretty unprovoked. Right. And then but, I, mean, I think Marty is pissing him off too. Marty's just being Marty. And yeah, they get on their way. And of course, that's like, you know, that's never, he's a harbinger. So it's just like, all right, they're, this is not going, this is not going <laughs> to. <laughs> we already know he tried to warn them even though a scene or so later we discover that he is also part of this organization right but he seems to believe it he's like a true believer so he has more of like a religious relationship to trying to prevent the apocalypse that the other guys don't quite follow (laughs) yeah and that reveal scene oh that happens a little later on i think is like one of the funniest Mm -hmm. moments where they're they have him on speakerphone and are just laughing at his his self-seriousness yeah yeah, it almost it reminds me like you know whether or not he really believed it it's like it reminds me of like an actor just like really going method and doing it and and he's like wait am i on speakerphone no 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 you're not okay i'll take me off and then he just keeps he goes on it's just uh it's so funny i love it so many great moments right and I, i like that it does the movie, this is one style of comedy. It does have a few different opportunities to to really play with that, right? There's this kind of subversion comedy. There's physical comedy. There's wordplay, silly stuff like that. So yeah. I feel like it does take the comedy aspect to heart pretty well while still being an effective horror movie. Yeah. Like, of all the movies we've talked about, I feel like this one, for me, has the like best balance, where it's like it's a legitimately scary movie and even really disturbing at times. Yeah, but it's also funny, and that's both are really clear and intentional. I agree. I think. I mean, I think this movie, like you said, it is so funny, and when it has those moments where. Almost like it's a little tongue in cheek, but like mm-hmm. sort of like poking fun at the tropes, sort of like taking a piss at them. But then, like you said, it's also it's it's very scary. And then you know, I mean, particularly towards the end, I saw there were some things that I noted that I I hadn't the first go around. It is it is very scary. I was telling a friend about it, and I was like, because they were like, I think I need to like ease my way into horror movies with a horror comedy. Do you think I should watch? Yeah cabin in the woods and i was like yeah definitely and then i had a moment i was like it is also pretty intense there's there's some some of the most disturbing images (laughs) pop up in this film yeah i think that was maybe the surprise for me going to see it that i thought i didn't know if it was going to try to make an effort to be scared (laughs) or make an effort to be true truly horrifying which it does i feel like 
And then it kind of keeps pushing it and it goes even beyond that to like a realm of absurd, the absurdity of horror that I think you were mentioning at the start. So I like where it goes from there. But they make like they make great dance partners, horror and comedy in this movie. Yeah, they're dancing great. They're doing it. (laughs) But there's a lot of so I kind of at this point, right, where we're kind of at the first the end of act one right or kind of through that first third where this group of people have come to this cabin we start to learn more about the agency controlling them and learning that they can there's only so far they can go right they can do all they can to get them there but for whatever reason this ritual sacrifice has to be based on free will they can't just go out and kill people that the the ancient ones, as they're called, the people who are kind of that or the ancient gods, the whatever it is in charge of it. It's a bit of a cosmic horror uh, by the end of all this, but their preference is that the sacrifices are making the choice, right, of how they're going to to die. Um, and this agency is there to make sure to control all the circumstances that lead to that. So I really enjoyed that part of it, right? Because that sets it up pretty early on, right? If they don't transgress, they can't be punished. Mm-hmm. Is the kind of line we get. You also learn not only like this is like they do this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. This is like every year. I can't remember like how often this happens, but they are so like they've done. They're used to this, and they're at, they're actually taking pets downstairs. Yeah. Oh, I um, like that moment. Yeah, and at this too. point, you still don't know. You, like, you can't put it together yet. But, like, mm-hmm. you're talking about, like, mermen and, like, zombies yeah. and stuff. And it's like, what? Like, how? how is this going to play in? Well, they have a whole board for all of the their bets. So they have, like, all of the different things that could come into play. My favorites. Uh, I, I had to write down my favorites. <laughs> Uh, we have Reptilius, love Reptilius, the sexy witches uh, versus just regular witches. They're they're separated. Uh, the dismemberment goblins, love them. And then Kevin, of course, Kevin is on the board. So that's always really funny to me. And then as we'll see, the, the zombie redneck torture family is who they do end up getting. Yeah. Just to cut ahead a little bit into that. There's like a distinction they said they're like but i put zombies i'm mm-hmm. like but this is zombie redneck torture family <laughs> it's a distinction yeah, it's a whole different species <laughs> yes it's so funny but i do like that scene where they're doing the betting mm-hmm. and what are their names oh amy acker and brian white who are playing lynn who's like the chemical she's in the chemicals engineering part of this thing and truman who's kind of their new security guard he's really off put by (laughs) everything he's seen um and doesn't want to take part in the gambling and she explains well they need to do this to blow off steam like it's a really if you really think about what you're having to do it probably would be pretty upsetting and difficult to do your job yeah which is maybe the way it should be but (laughs) and then in the end she ends up putting in her bet too and it's a very sad and funny moment i I don't know this is one moment that sticks with me the betting comes once they go into the cellar so why are they going into this cellar so the cellar literally just pops open 
once mm-hmm. they've all settled down, which must be the wind. I assume, yeah, just yet another mechanism because mm-hmm. they can't force them. They can just lure them down. They all go down there. It's like in the midst of a, gra- a game of truth or dare. <laughs> I think Dana gets dared to go downstairs. They all end up in the cellar, which is just a cellar full of creepy, somewhat horror tropey items. And it becomes like whichever one gets, whichever of these gets picked, it's going to signal mm. this year's what is it? Nightmares. Yeah. Monsters, whatever you want to call them. And the, what are they called? The Buckner family? They get it because she finds this ancient, not ancient, I mean, yeah, 1903 is pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> he reads a, a passage in Latin. Ancient Marty. enough. Yeah, and Marty, <laughs> Marty is like, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Something, do not read the Latin. <laughs> Which, of course, you're not supposed to read. You don't, yeah. Which, absolutely, don't ever do. Definitely never read the Latin. And that's when I think we, these two kind of stories, we finally start to understand a bit of how they're functioning and who is, like, that they're actually behind the scenes and almost puppeteering the whole thing, which is a thing that comes up a lot, um, this idea. Oh, yes, the puppeteering. Puppets and Pop Tarts come up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Marty's always very close to getting it, and then they just kind of write him off because they're like, you're just really high. And it's like, yeah. Is, he's on to something, though. He is also a little bit too high to, <laughs> to follow through on his thoughts. He's very high, but he also. Mm hmm. Yeah, especially when <laughs> yeah. he starts hearing voices and <laughs> like, I'm going to go read a book of pictures. Uh, but that's how we get to that conversation, I think, because then the new security guy is just like, it's kind of like, how do you make light of this? And it's like, well, you know, just part of the job. Right, which it it, it is, but you also don't need to do that job. No, you know. Maybe there's a thought. Well, it's the people downstairs. It's like, maybe, you know, people downstairs are still people. Mm-hmm. Maybe people upstairs in this case. Oh, yeah. The people upstairs, the people downstairs. That's very interesting, like, that when I first saw this, yeah. I didn't really pick up on the meaning of of that, the people upstairs. Because it definitely changes what happens in our third act, in our transition there. But basically, the, this is the mm-hmm. part. So once they've made their choice, basically, because Dana reads the book first before anyone else can kind of get through their whatever ceremonial summoning is going to happen. This is kind of where everything, all hell breaks loose, basically. And I think it moves pretty fast from there. So what would make up the bulk of a regular movie, you know, like a you know, about an hour or so of kind of a regular old slasher movie is I think compressed mostly into like this 30 minute section, right? The movie's only an hour and a half and this happens at about halfway through the movie. Yeah. No, I noticed that too. Cause I, I looked actually, because I was like, how much, like how much is left of the movie? And it's like, 
that mm-hmm. final third act is maybe like less than half an hour. Yeah. And they, you know, they quite literally, they kind of slash the necessary people that need to be slashed in order for this sacrifice to happen in the way it is meant to happen. Yeah, there are some complications. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) some complications do come up, but I I think that part is where it switches to kind of an all-out horror. And the movie does this. The movie takes on a a more somber Mm -hmm. tone at that moment with the first death of Jules, right? Like, I think it's really disturbing. Um, But she and Kurt, Chris Hemsworth, uh, trying his best with that American (laughs) accent. I would say he's... He's working really hard on on getting that right. Uh, (laughs) But they're they're going out to have a a lover's rendezvous in the woods. And that's where the the Buckners come to get them. And that moment, that is a big scare when they're first revealed because they just stab her right in the hand. I was like, oh, that's that is a shock. I will. I will admit to that. Yeah, from there, I think just the way that they operate is very grungy, very aggressively violent. They're a redneck zombie torture family, so that it makes sense, I suppose. But I think that's, to me, probably the most disturbing Mm -hmm. violence we get in the film. Yeah, I, I agree. I think in horror comedy, I think what for this, what makes it, I was like, all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, like, you know, we are kind of shifting. Gears is really just, you know, the emotion you get from the character. It isn't just sort of like the terror you see in her face where it's not, it's a little more Mm -hmm. than I would have expected from a horror comedy, which did take me by surprise. It's, uh, yeah, and I think actually kind of goes into a little of the territory of what they were actually Mm -hmm. trying to critique a little bit and sort of this like torture horny and she's also you know she's also topless at this point and you know and then she meets a very frightening disturbing end well i felt bad for jules yeah that's saw a rusty old jaggedy edge saw no no thank you yeah yeah she's supposed to die first which is kind of we learn later it's got to be gotta be the horror first oh yeah yeah <laughs> whatever that means yeah there's there is still some like 10 years on were there better ways to to handle that to make that message happen i think i think there probably are but other movies have done it successfully since then mm-hmm. i think talking about that that dichotomy or that expectation which is not, you know, a real thing. That's a societal influence. So that is part of where it breaks down because it's like, well, why do the ancient ones mm-hmm. care about these societally imposed rules? And that's really more to serve the metaphor of the movie than I think mm-hmm. it would maybe logically make sense. But I don't, I don't know these ancient ones. Maybe they are super. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I kind of, you know, it's like, I don't want to know what they're like. You want a sequel that's just the ancient ones <laughs> hanging out? I mean, I wonder. I wonder I if uh, 
wonder if that idea ever floated around. But then it kind of amps up from there, yeah. Yeah. And then Kurt runs back to the cabin, and it's quickly established, like, you know, very quickly, like, there are some people out there trying to kill us, and at that point, yeah, we should split up, which is, like, they're, like, engineered horror movie thing like let's go off in different directions yeah but it literally gets engineered in this moment because they're like we should stick together and do things yeah he turns around and they blow a chemical into the cabin (laughs) it's immediately like let's split up and then that's kind of when they get split up that's when marty discovers the camera in his his lamp so he starts to realize there's something not quite right going on here Mm -hmm. but then one of the buckners takes him out a window and we think that marty has died at this point it's an interesting thing it's also a weird thing i didn't even try to really look up what the i don't know the plot hole or the whatever hole is here because i'm not sure whenever someone gets killed in this group we see this kind of lever break open in the ancient throne room and their blood kind of pours down into their image of them and that happens for marty here but uh spoiler alert as we get towards the end we find out that marty hasn't actually died so i'm like well then whose blood is in here what's going on yeah do we think there's just like do we think there's just like one technician who's just like watching and like pulling a lever like maybe they didn't like Maybe they just assumed, like, whoever, um, that, that guy's getting fired. That person's going to get in trouble. Yeah. Well. <gasps> Too late. I guess the end of the world yeah. saved him from being fired. Yeah. I mean, he gets, like, stabbed in the back. Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to be, like, believably dead. Otherwise, like, it wouldn't work. Yeah, with a half of a gardening shear. But I wonder if it's, yeah, supposed to be, like, a symbolic thing. Like, what actually is pouring onto those images isn't their direct blood, but it just, like, signals that thing, like you said. So someone has to control when that happens, and it's just their signal that they, like, I saw someone die, or I didn't. So, yes, someone's definitely would have gotten fired for that. Fireable offense. They had a lot of bad things (laughs) happen that day. Because, as we see a little bit later on, they also have a an electrical issue that makes the whole last part of this movie happen. But I'll just do a quick run through because we get through the next kind of section of it where our remaining characters kind of band together to get under the house and get out that way. They go to drive back around. And this is where we first see that there's an electrical issue because the tunnel kind of cave roadway thing that they came in through a uh, covered bridge maybe is meant to have collapsed earlier on and for some reason it didn't the explosives that they have set there to to make that collapse didn't go off so our heroes are about to make their way out and that's when it kind of explodes and crashes down so they're like well how are we going to get to the other side of this Chris Hemsworth gets on a a bike of some kind that I guess he brought with him from somewhere. <laughs> we probably saw it at some point and I just didn't really notice. There were definitely things in this that I'm like, wait, what is that? And then I saw that they were connected. I didn't remember it. I was like, yeah, 
yeah, I guess he totally was like, let me bring my dirt bike or whatever that thing is. <laughs> so that he can jump across this gorge to the other side of the roadway. But uh, unfortunately, there is some invisible electrified fence barrier <laughs> that prevents him from making it over. Uh, which we saw in action earlier uh, when they first arrived and Eagle flew into it. So, Or a hawk. I'm not sure what bird that was supposed to be. That does not go well for him. So our athlete is gone. Then Dana and Holden, who are the only ones left at this point, get back in the RV and drive the other direction. At this point, Dana realizes that Marty was right, that they are being puppeteered in some way, like someone had to have set up this whole environment. So she's kind of given up a little bit of hope, like, we can't go anywhere. We're not going to get out of this place. And Holden's trying to convince her that they can. That's a little bit too late for him, because we have another big, another shocking death moment uh he gets stabbed by one of the buckners who was hiding out in the rv and since he's driving that causes him to drive off the road and the rv to crash into their little lake area and dana our final girl gets out of that scenario as well but it's still not enough as she gets attacked by uh, one of the buckners the big guy with the the bear trap. <laughs> like, I don't remember which name goes with which person. But but that's kind of where it wraps up, right? Like, then we come back out of that moment and back into the government agency. They're starting to drink and celebrate because they're like, okay, we did it. Our job is done, right? It doesn't matter to them. Like, the final girl can live or die. It really doesn't matter as long as everyone else has died before her but the movie's not over yet because i do remember the first time i saw it thinking that oh wow they're really going there they're really just gonna make that dark ending and then something else is gonna happen like i thought it would just kind of then switch over to this agency and focus on stuff with them which it does to a degree but then things shift in the in the horror movie scenario as well where dana's not not dead yet and she gets saved by a, a, a use of a, a thermos, a bong thermos that Marty has. That bong thermos is hilarious. Yeah. Extendable coffee cup bong thermos. This coffee cup? That's amazing. But he, he catches up the bear trap before it can do its damage. They get out of there and run to a grave and that grave opens up into kind of this underground passageway. And we see what the cause of like the electrical mm -hmm. issues were because Marty, after dismembering a guy, one of the zombie guys, he discovered there was an elevator kind of underground there, right? When he dismantled whatever system was in there. So they get into the elevator and that was kind of a surprise for me the first time I saw it because they, they were talking about the people upstairs, downstairs, whatever, in the government agency. But I def definitely just thought they were at one site, like a location somewhere distant. And then this was somewhere else. But to realize that like, they no, they literally are right on top. This whole thing is playing out right on top of that mm -hmm. agency was really an exciting thing. 
So we get a whole cavalcade of monsters here. I like this moment. It's like just this kind of little square or cube shaped elevator that takes us around. We get to see all these other monsters that could have been unleashed on them, depending on on where they are. I like some of the behind the scenes for this one because they shot all these creatures in a lot of different ways. Some of it is CGI, some of it's green screen, some of it's miniature. So they just like took a whole bunch of different monsters or bugs or whatever things they were and just framed them up the same way so that they could kind of put them all together, whether it was like the clown guy on a green screen or whether it was like a tarantula in a miniature or a thing like that. So I think that's a really fun behind the scenes thing to look at is how they shot all the cubes with the different monsters. Yeah. My favorite, I think, is the ballerina. Mm. Uh, ballerina with teeth teeth face so creepy why are teeth creepy that's a good question i think in the combination with ballet and also i think she's like supposed to be like a child just uh yeah there's so many good ones as i was watching and i was like oh who are my favorites (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah did you pick up that one any other favorites? Yeah, I think um, I love the ballet dancer. I like, um, it's almost like, who did I find the creepiest? Because you're right, there's like a lot of really fun, a little more silly, like mm-hmm. CGI ones that are great, but like they didn't quite get me. I, I also, I noted, we've got like the family from The Strangers, or it seems to be like yeah. homage, which I still, yeah. still to me is like one of the creepiest Creepy strangers. Love it. Yeah. I mean, there's a scene, I think it's like the most frightening in this movie where you see on the security cameras, like all the different monsters and like killings that are happening. And they're like, some of the scariest ones are just in like these tiny little boxes. Mm-hmm. And barely actually like rewound it to, to look at it. So I was like, what is going on? And you've got like. Oh yeah. They're doing so many creepy things. There, there's one there's one where like someone is crawling across the ceiling yeah like and starts crawling through the camera and yeah it gets it's funny it, the, there's like this balance of like kind of fun and then but then the behind the scenes stuff going on there's some like pretty dreadful kills going on yeah oh i love unicorn stabbing i had a moment of like what's the unicorn i thought unicorns is like no yeah unicorns don't mess with yeah the wacky stuff is all front-loaded including a unicorn stabbing someone to death which i love it's gonna stab but yeah a lot of really disturbing stuff on the security camera footage that like if you just glance at yeah and like as they mentioned before it's like they they say something like you know we want to keep the customers happy like we want like they want more they want to be entertained like more sadism more suffering you you just see like all these different versions of like what we could have had it kind of makes the buckner family look pretty tame like some of this stuff yeah pops up yeah this it could have gone a lot of different ways i mean i want to see more from the dismemberment goblins that's for sure Dismemberment goblins. Yeah, it'd be really fun. Like, you just like 
pause on that one moment where all the elevator doors mm-hmm. whatever release and they all come out you just kind of like take a look and like you know just see who's all in there it's fun to think through like what the movie would be like or the scenario would be like so the movie that we just saw or the cabin in the woods scenario we played out what if you placed one of these other villains in that scenario is also it's a fun thought experiment yeah (laughs) afterwards because they would be very it would all be very different like the strangers version of this movie that could be pretty terrifying that would have been movie i mean what if they did pick merman yeah like they're they seem kind of that mer mer merman i I guess it's a merman yeah because it's kind of it was kind of (laughs) slow it was very slow maybe there'd be multiple mer people this year like he's like squish he's wet sounds and he's like are you fucking kidding me or something is that he wanted he wanted to see he got his wish he did get his wish yeah all hell breaks loose everyone in that agency dies basically it all happens fairly i mean it's a pretty prolonged scene but i feel like it's all like quick cutting between all these different crazy mutations i don't know one of the creatures i latched onto. i was just gonna say i like the the robo scorpion it's like this mechanical scorpion that's kind of hanging around there sometimes it's like very small it's like not really focused on it just kind of shows <laughs> up a few times and it's so funny i love it yeah i like the snake too or the python oh yeah that pi- whatever that's, it is it's python, proud of itself but i <laughs> it is yeah it's cute they all work together you know i don't think they're fighting i don't think there's any infighting they're just like yeah it's just like they they have a common enemy. They've been yeah, you know, captured for who knows for how long. But yeah, we get that scene with the merman where, yeah, he gets his wish. What all happens? Lynn gets grabbed up by a tentacle from the ceiling and Truman is killed by the, the scarecrow people. Oh my God. Is that what the, I, it happens so fast? Yeah. It's hard to see, but you can see a little bit of like he's shooting them yeah. and there's kind of like the stuffing coming out. And I just tied it together from because yeah. I spent more time looking at that board. So I think like looking at the board, I saw mm-hmm. I was able to connect more of the pieces uh, than I have at any other time I've watched this movie. <laughs> so I love a good, you know, scarecrow yeah. horror. But that all wraps up. And then we get, of course, our mm, Buffy lifted moment. Or it feels like that for me, that where uh, Richard Jenkins mm-hmm. Sitterson gets accidentally stabbed by Dana, oh. which is a, a thing that happens in season three of Buffy. I won't spoil too much though. <laughs> for any of the Buffy fans out there. Those are rough. I've seen that. I see that happen a bunch in horror movies. That's the accidental. That's a bummer. Murder. Yeah. yeah especially if it's like someone, I mean, like she didn't know who this person was i think she figures like it's someone behind this and at that point they're sort of like let's just like burn it all down the sense that she was yeah. just like you're in on this so there's a lot of information happening yeah. at her at this moment right because i don't even know she 
didn't even really fully intentionally mean to stab like he's just running down a hallway and she's like i don't know what's coming around the corner like like we don't even know the exact situation it was like you just kind of he ran into my knife he ran into my knife six times Uh, (laughs) but he did have it coming that is can safely make the case i gotta say like i did i mean this just i i felt myself so messed up but i think particularly the security guard and then i don't remember her name but like amy acker Mm -hmm. their character felt i was just like oh well uh it was dark you wanted them to have maybe a moment to like turn against what was you know try to either possibly maybe help dana and marty or show a different side i think that was just like because you know again like because we're talking about horror comedy there was like is this gonna let up at some mm. point is it then at this point it's kind of like it's it's very um i mean it just goes straight up like there is no hope in this world yeah sort of, like everyone is going yeah it gets more and more depressing <laughs> it, it really does and like i don't know maybe it was like this watch but i was just like there's no way out of this. I mean, we discover there's one way out of this yeah. for um, the two of them if they choose, but it's just sort of like everyone is going to go out in some like truly frightening yeah. way. And... and they all do. But going back to that moment of the accidental stabbing, that's kind of his last words is you need to kill him. So Dana realizes in this builds up that, oh, mm-hmm. Marty needs to die if we're supposed to prevent this apocalypse. So they make it down to the underground chamber and we get an amazing moment, amazing reveal, immaculate. The great Sigourney Weaver shows up. I love this moment. Yeah. I just, it's everything. I'm like, I don't know who else you could put in there to make this moment work. Yeah. I just imagine them just like, you know, you get Sigarni on board. You're like, all right, got like five minutes of screen time. <laughs> Here you we go. need you for two days. And you're out. Yeah, she really just, you know, she just sells it. I believe that Sigarni Weaver was the director. She's the angry yeah. person that's on the phone, like threatening them. <laughs> yeah, she knows what's, yeah, she knows how to get things done. Until this moment, I guess, where things spiral a little bit out of control. (laughs) But yeah, we do get a lot packed into this moment, right, Dana? Now that she has a gun that Marty gave her willingly, she's about to shoot him and gets attacked by a werewolf. So that's (laughs) starting point number one. So the director decides to take matters into her own hands and tries to kill Marty herself. But then we get Patience Buckner the one-armed daughter of the redneck zombie torture family arrive with her axe just in time. Yeah. Can I say something about Patience Buckner? That yeah. I, because I definitely, I didn't get this the first time I watched this movie, but it might've been in the diary. And then I was also reading like, she is the survivor of s- sexual abuse mm-hmm. or like something going on and even when you first see her and it's it's Jodell Furland you just see on her face like she never mm-hmm. speaks but you really like see something there and even in that final moment 
it feels like there's some like retribution there you know yeah. like she's yeah i don't know it was uh it's a little eerie seeing that she's like come and you know she's like still she's like crawled all the way down to take it out on someone right so uh, yeah who yeah, from her point of view, deserves it, right? Yeah. And I think I would have liked to see more, maybe with patience, because I think yeah. it's good casting. Jodel Ferland is such a, a prominent enough figure in the horror world as a child <laughs> actor. So to kind of see her in this role yeah. is interesting. So I think maybe just a few touches more would make that moment yeah. land even harder. But I do agree. I think it is a, a bittersweet kind of thing that happens yeah just if you just watch her face like she's i mean all the acting is ha- there's something very devastating and sad you know comes mm-hmm. from a very messed up family <laughs> right and to be forced to like work alongside them for all eternity or anytime they get called up also is yeah probably pretty painful patience but um yeah she gets to take out the director which there you go. And then it's just the two of them. Yeah. And it's just Marty and Dana totally destroyed at the end of this, but still alive for now. Um, and they kind of talk about, you know, they make up, right? She apologizes for trying to kill him. He apologized for letting her get attacked by a werewolf. They share a joint and talk about how they would have had liked to have the opportunity mm-hmm. to see the ancient ones, yeah. I believe, just because I think I wish we could have seen them. Yeah, I guess maybe it would make it feel more like okay, at least we know what we're giving the world over to in a sense, or mm-hmm. appease yourself in some way. I'm like, I don't know if I'd want to know yeah. in that situation. I'd be like, I guess yeah. if I'm making this choice, I'm just gonna peace out. Very dark. <laughs> yeah, but. The place starts to crumble, rumbling, crumbling, and then we see a big godlike hand shoot up mm-hmm. through the earth and smash down on the cabin. And that's where the cabin in the woods end. Well, not before we get some weird rock ending soundtrack. Yeah. That also feels like very, <laughs> very much of the time, the kind of like, I don't know, it's not even new metal. It's whatever was in that era of the 2000s. Like, you got to make sure your movie ends with some. I just remember being in the theater and just being like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. But like, like, what was that ending? Oh, my God. Yeah. But, but it's not also so like, I guess the implication is devastating but for some reason maybe just because of the tone of the overall movie or how that ending like dana and marty's conversation at the end of it i don't feel like oh my gosh i'm so weighted down i'm bogged down in sadness like i might at the end of something like yeah uh, i think of another really (laughs) devastating ending that actually does feel dark and depressing oh you know it's not like how i feel at the end of funny games or something like that yeah, you know, they were resigned to just ride it out together, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Go out of are doing, you know, you gotta let the system crumble sometimes. Yeah, it is a weird place to put you in as an audience where you're like, I don't really want the end of the world, but uh, I kind of support their reasons for <laughs> letting the world end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, I was like watching it, it, it was like, 
you know, just getting into the psychology of it, even though it's like, mm. sorry, but I couldn't help but be like, yeah, what do you do in that <laughs> situation? Because, yeah. you know, at first she does try to kill him. And then it's almost like her, whether you want to call it like her, either if it's like a question of morals or she just want to kill her friend, mm-hmm. or even if it's just like, you know what, if this is the way the world works, like, let it, let it just end. Yeah with us because if you don't you know you have to doom who however many other people right not just in like Like, uh, is that there's if you've ever heard i don't know like who where this comes from but it's like i don't know it's like you you choose you could like do this thing and like you save like you can save these like 15 people or like this one oh like the trolley problem kind of thing yeah this has to be like i don't know it something that comes up in along some kind of like psychological <laughs> evaluation yeah like, would you you know like do this one thing you save like mm-hmm. you can save the baby or you could save like these 15 adults like that kind of thing it's like do you do you let the whole world end or do you kill your best friend yeah <laughs> tough call tough call yeah i like thinking about it through this movie where i feel like i don't know what type of situation would make me feel differently but I do buy it. I guess maybe because the movie is also a bit ridiculous right it's not trying to be super grounded in reality like there's a purge button on there the desk in the in the station that can just release all the monsters at once it's super clearly labeled so anyone just walking in could do this so there's just moments of ridiculousness that like take it out of the realm of possibility so that that argument is a bit more abstract, I think in a positive way. So then we don't see what Marty's doing as like totally selfish or totally like, well, yeah, that's a bad thing to do. I guess it depends on like your moral relativism, right? Depends on who you are as a person. Maybe you would see it as solely selfish, but I do see it from the point of view that Dana presents us of, are we making things worse if we keep the system going? I could also see how, you know, at the start of this movie, they might have made completely different choices, but they've, they've had an understandably rough night. Yeah. <laughs> the, like, they would behave very differently. I mean, it's a hell of a way to sort of be like, I feel very differently about life and overall, like, overall where the world is going. So it's even like, you know, like imagining even if, you know, they did prevent the ancient ones from rising again. It's like, it's a lot to carry around. (laughs) Yeah. Well, speaking of how we feel at the beginning and the end, I guess I wanted to leave off that conversation with just how does a final thought about how do you feel about this movie? You know, 10 years later, looking back on it, is there new things? that you take away from the movie um, or a different feeling? Because I guess my thought was like, yeah, when I first saw it, it's it very different from how I, I feel about it now in some ways, but I still really yeah. love the movie mm-hmm. that's tempered by stuff that isn't any of the movies itself's fault. That's somewhat of my issues with the people who made it, but <laughs> it's a separate thing. I think I I definitely 
you know, 10 years later, also, you know, just like myself being Mm -hmm. 10 years older, but also things that have been happening just in the last few years, like both with this idea of like, we could prevent, there's a lot we could do to intervene and prevent a lot of suffering Mm -hmm. and pain that happens. And I, and, you know, I hate to like, keep (laughs) bringing up, but even like, even with COVID, it's just like, like one like simple decision could affect you know someone's life I don't know I can't I can't help but like I mean you know being in this pandemic where it literally is kind of like sometimes it's like is the world ending like is it is this all just inevitable I mean I think it's like everything (laughs) is inevitable I think it's a good movie for that right it pushes you to have that thought yeah it's like you know no one's gonna get out of this thing alive either way (laughs) at the end of the day like are there things that are still worth fighting for is or is it like maybe Mm. we should just take the hint from the universe or (laughs) or whatever like maybe like like is the human race like are we just holding up the inevitable like that kind of idea which i think is actually in this movie but it's it's very different watching it you know two or three years into a pandemic and also I think it's interesting there's a lot of talk about you know like they want to go off the grid but then they realize like they're actually on the grid they're being there's surveillance and oh yeah even more deeply on the grid than what they came in thinking about yeah it's like the voyeurism it just makes me think of like whether it's through the news or through social media like we see things happening but I think we're so like our I mean actually I wanted to bring up like there's a moment in the movie where I can't remember which one of the um uh what do you call it the engineers it is Mm -hmm. but he has a moment where he's like kind of regretful he's sort of like yeah you know like like he sounds like he's starting to just admit like it's too bad like this has to go and then he has a moment, but it gets interrupted. And he starts, like, bringing tequila. And he's, like, he starts... Yeah, tequila like, yeah, is my lady. Tequila is my lady. <laughs> and it just, it really made me think it's, like, yeah, like, it's just our attention spans for things that are horrible, but they're not necessarily directly affecting us. And it's sort of, like, oh, and the next thing. It's, like, mm-hmm. you think a lot about that. Because, you know, it's, like, it's like, and then the next thing happens, and we're focused on that. Right. It's both... That interesting cross of surveillance and voyeurism, right? Of like, we're being surveilled Mm -hmm. so often. And we do that to ourselves a a lot too, right? We uh, wittingly or unwittingly are signing up for surveillance software uh, (laughs) every day. And we also use that to spy in or vicariously Mm -hmm. see other people's lives or whatever that is. And so there is is going to be an empathy gap, right? That at some point, that's just maybe too many, too many things to see, right? There's just too many people to try to like find a, a common ground or an empathy with. So, yeah. And this movie is from 2012, where that type of thing was just ramping up, I guess, right? Like the the idea of platforms like Vine or Instagram or TikTok, all of that hadn't really taken off. Those were starting, so. It's weird how much this movie goes into that without it being like 
it's not in a scream way, right? Scream is always more very directly interested in the the current technology, but I mean, if you think about it, our Instagram stories not just like the Rubik's cube elevator kind of like hopping around. It's like yes. you're gonna see stuff. You're gonna see some disturbing stuff. Yeah, and they're all in these little. It's great, and I I love that scene where like it just like the camera goes out and you see these just like thousands of little boxes mm-hmm. <laughs> and they all contain like a different little cute little terrifying creature. So yeah, I think um, I definitely had a different watch than I did in 2012. And then, you know, I probably watched it again, maybe like three or four years later and, you know, maybe just like being older and like more jaded my self like i i still i still really love this movie and i i just i find like stuff mm-hmm. that used to not phase me as much i'll find myself like feeling empathy in places where i'm like i don't know if this movie's really trying to like make you feel that much because it is still a horror comedy and i you know i find myself being like oh man like dana and marty like like you know like over <laughs> here like yeah what about my best friends. You. Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, I, I mean, these are all really. I love all these talking points. This is really great. Like, there's more horror movies, as we know, are always in some ways doing more just because they are so sometimes doing more than even the creators intend, right? Like we talked about with technology and surveillance. So having that open. Ness uh, of a satirical world, I think, helps this movie age pretty well. Even though stylistically, it does feel like this very late two thousands, early two thousand tens look. It doesn't feel super dated, just because even talking about technology, it leaves it to the side. Right? We don't really see a lot of people on uh, smartphones because they're at a cabin in the woods uh, and things like this. So it's it doesn't get dated in that sense and so i think Mm -hmm. that it helps apply these themes in different times right like it can still fit and comment on the world in 2016 and in 2020 and and that's really an interesting and and venerable thing for it to do (laughs) i suppose Mm -hmm. so i i yeah i appreciate being able to kind of still enjoy it for what it is and think that it holds together really well. Like it's just really well structured. It's a strong movie. Yeah. I don't know. I, I still feel, I still have a lot of positive feelings about it. Right. <laughs> that, that that some of it is nostalgia and some of it is like, no, it's actually just a really well-constructed film. And that's, that's my take on it. But as my last kind of point of business where can we find you on uh, the internet if you want people to see more of your work or if there's any upcoming events or things, readings uh, of the like that you have planned that you'd like to plug? I do have some horror things that are in a little bit of a development limbo, but if you okay. come to Instagram or Twitter, you might hear about that or anything else regarding horror and the like um my twitter is kick the jam it's all one word and my instagram 
kick the jam yeah and then my um my instagram all one word is emotional support snack but if you just enter mm. my name you'll probably you'll probably find me <laughs> um yes you can also add yeah jan rosenberg there or jan rosenberg.com yeah you get everything you need you love horror you love theater you love both those things i can talk about that stuff for hours without stopping so yeah um and so horror so theater <laughs> horror, horror more theater. horror theaters any takeaways do i'll also recommend some of my favorite horror plays mm. but uh yeah this was really awesome thank you yeah good excuse to watch this movie good we're always yeah trying to make sure people have excuses yeah, I love- if that's what you were looking for all along you know, book a time. Yeah. Plan to come talk on, on our podcast and make yourself watch that movie you've been meaning to, to get back to. <laughs> right. Well, make sure you stay out of any cabins in the woods. Don't read Latin. We know it's always going to turn bad. And uh, keep it creepy. Click. Did you hang up? No, I just said click.